Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 109 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. It's me, it's Trevor Dame, the other voice you'll hear, as always, is the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, this is one of the big ones, one of those episodes where I always say I never really get nervous doing a podcast anymore. I've grown hard and tough through all these years, but whenever it's like a really big show, I always get a tiny bit nervous because I'm like, oh, we really got to... We gotta do this one right. I, I can't be complete garbage this time. So, uh, you heard, one it, those you heard it here first, folks. Trevor has grown hard. Um, so oh, <laughs> I, it's, it's always my job to ruin an episode that you know more people will listen to with some sort of disgusting comment. But, uh, yeah, this is one for the deep vein thrombozos that have been sticking with us the whole time. I know that you've all been waiting for this one, as have we. Um, I am looking forward to it. I think there's going to be a lot to say. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun rewatching it because a lot of memories. And as if this uh, show wasn't long enough, we always try to cover um, what happens between the last Ring of Honor show and this show in the timeline. There's a few news things I've got, and uh, one or two might uh, even kind of touch on stuff that happens on the show. So, first off, one big thing that happened between the last Ring of Honor show, Chai Town Struggle, and this show is uh, a bunch of the Ring of Honor wrestlers went on their uh, Dragon Gate excursion, and uh, the Observer and the Torch have a bit of news on that. So first we'll go to the Observer, where Dave Meltzer would write, Austin Aries and Roderick Strong retained the ROH tag titles while on tour with Dragon Gate, headlined the uh, July 9th show at Differ Ariaki before uh, 1,100 fans beating Masato Yoshino and Nairuki Doi in 1849, when Aries pinned Yoshino after a 450 splash, also on the tour from Ring of Honor were Jimmy Rave, Matt Seidel, and Jack Evans, along with Chris Bosch and B-Boy from PWG. So there was a, a healthy U.S. indie contingent there. And then as the PW Torch would remind me, looking through the notes, you know, now after this match, the Dragon Gate, I mean, the tag titles in Ring of Honor will now be known as the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Titles. So just like how, and, and Ring of Honor announced that on like one of the recent shows we've covered, but just like how... The Ring of Honor title became the world title only when Joe finally defended the title in 2003 in the UK. This one match turns the title into a world title. So, yeah, we we discussed this on the uh, In Your Face episode. It's one of the uh, the quirks of ROH that they have this policy, but I suppose it's admirable in its way that they try to um, have some logic to the naming of their belts. And to show like how certain guys were getting pushed, the Observer would also write that uh, Roderick Strong and Matt Seidel won a four-way match at the uh, July 12th show at Corican Hall in Tokyo for Dragon Gate, winning the Jam Cup, which is also something you need at the as a side dish for any plate of waffles. On the current tour with Ring of Honor and PWG talent, the other teams were Don Fuji and Shima, Jimmy Raven, Masato Yoshino, and Dragon Kid and Rio Saito. Seidel pinned Shima, who is Dragon Gate's biggest star, to win the final elimination using a shooting star press. So you could tell, you know, Matt Seidel would be a guy that's probably Dragon Gate would love. Just like credible, natural flyer, easy missed, on the eyes. Missed opportunity when they came back that the um that they didn't use the Jam Cup as a like a an object. To, uh, that they use against their opponents in matches. Just uh, yeah. throw a bunch of jam on them in the middle of the match, make them all sticky, maybe even get some bees on them, which is a callback to a very old episode. Um, <laughs> throw jam on them, unleash the bees. You know. This, and, is, uh, this is, if, oh. if you uh, remember uh, when CM Punk was doused in Pepsi on his final night in Ring of Honor, 
Um, I was also very concerned about bees at that point. <laughs> a real wicker man moment for professional wrestling. But um, so then we're going to the PW torch for this little story, which kind of makes Austin Aries, you know, run this year more impressive because he's been, I would say Austin Aries, the same level of quality, although he's been, you know, less solo featuring, but still really good in the tag team with Roderick Strong. And the torch would write ring of honor announced that Austin Aries recently found out that he has wrestled for, on a torn ACL for roughly a year. Aries will need surgery at some point, but we'll continue to wrestle for now. Out of curiosity, I decided not just to jog my memory and like look up uh, his matches overall on Cage Match. And he keeps wrestling. I, I can't even see like a noticeable block of time. He's not wrestling for quite a long time. So he just keeps going. Yeah, I'm, is, not sure. uh, I'm curious if he ever gets that surgery. Yeah, so uh, I don't think I've ever had a serious muscle tear. I can't even imagine what it would be like to just be like to be so tough and just so used to pain that I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that I've torn this muscle for an entire year while I've been doing physical athletics. But didn't um, the... didn't Brock Lesnar not realize he had like diverticulitis for like a year and he was <laughs> fighting with it? Like so these these guys they, and, and women, yeah. they they you know they're a different breed. Like they, they just. Pain is just part of life, I guess. And then, Matt, going to an even more severe injury. This is a, this is a story I'm going to make a little joke at the end, and I'm glad. This is one of those advantages to doing a show that covers wrestling that's decades old because you and I can make jokes about certain situations when we know it turned out okay. So this is from The Observer. Between the last show, I think, in this one, this is when uh, Kenta Kobashi, of course, was diagnosed with colon cancer. It's Thankfully, we now know he's been many years in remission. He got through it. But uh, Dave would write, I just like the phrasing of this, Matt, and maybe you'll pick up why Dave wrote in The Observer. Before Kenta Kobashi was diagnosed with cancer, Ring of Honor released that they had been in negotiations with Pro Wrestling Noah for a Joe, Samoa Joe versus Kobashi 2 match, which as of a few weeks ago was looking like it wasn't going to happen. After the news of Kobashi's cancer was released, Noah officials told ROH that Kobashi would never wrestle in the U.S. again. I just love that that makes it almost sound like Noah's blaming the U.S. for his cancer. <laughs> like, like, I love, like, the severity of not like oh this match won't happen but like he's never wrestling in the US again you know what you did you know what um, I wouldn't put it past the United States of America to be at fault for such a thing we have a pretty toxic environment here just just, I mean, just being just being here for um for a few weeks could could do that to you that's what I say I mean if you're not acclimated acclimated to some of the food like I don't know those Stouffer's lasagnas have quite yeah. a few uh, chemicals in them so I wouldn't no, be surprised no. and, if they and were actually like- while I'm in the process of blaming the United States for things I guess we're actually more to blame for the uh, undue high cancer rates in Japan because of you know things that the United States did uh, to <laughs> Japan Look it up in the history books, folks. There was a little incident. Um, uh, a couple of them. But I, I do believe, though, that was also – yeah, so that really does – I think technically not Joe versus Kobashi. That would have been a Joe and uh, Low Key versus Kobashi and Homicide, I think. I guess is – is that his last U.S. match or Kobashi's last U.S. match or did he do something else? I, I, all, I don't know for sure, but I feel like I know. <laughs> that, that was his for last all I know, U.S. match. Say, oh, he actually did a match with Harley Race's promotion or something. You know, the, I know he, did, but, he, did, he did one before. Or the ROH yeah. matches, but I don't think he did one after. And a uh, couple more things. So we have uh, from the Observer TNA section, 
this is an interesting little thing to note in the timeline where right now, Matt, you know, we've picked up on this in recent shows how Ring of Honor talent kind of getting phased down that's working in TNA. And we'll see by, you know, a few months into next year, most of the major TNA talent that works Ring of Honor will be gone, even if the, they're like the biggest Ring of Honor names. But it, it's funny because we're kind of seeing at this point, we'll see with the show, Homicide's, get, you know, walking into the biggest Ring of Honor push of his career. But he was starting to get a little more of a look from TNA, too, because in the Observer's TNA section, Dave would write, Homicide got two singles matches for TNA, as well as a match with Shark Boy for Explosion, because the booking committee knows he's got a good rep from Ring of Honor, but wanted to see it for themselves. What held back his push up to this point is he came in with the bad shoulder, and due to a lack of communication, there was a belief until recently he was hurting, and they tried to keep him in short brawls, and also the nature of how LAX has been booked. wasn't the, They weren't matches that he really could show much in. So, yeah, you're going to start seeing, you know, Homicide's going to start getting a little more, and he's never going to be a big push commodity in, in uh, TNA, but he's starting to get pushed a little bit more there. I, I also just like the idea that, like, the way Dave makes it right, like, they just for, like forgot, like, oh, your, your shoulder's okay now? We don't have to just put you in five-minute tag matches? Like, oh, I guess we should start trying to do something with you. And, yeah, and, and, and of course he does get, uh, you know, a, a pretty prominent role there. It's sad, though, that maybe, like, the thing Homicide's most famous for is climbing that weird red cage. I mean, in TNA, is, is climbing that weird red cage. Like, Yeah, the, well, because like, it was, like, the night of their big Monday Night War debut, yeah. <laughs> so it was, like, the worst possible timing to have an embarrassing situation. That wasn't his fault at all, yeah. but, yes, it was, that, that is unfortunate. And then we go to the torch for another little thing. Uh, Gabe Sapolsky was talking to the torch, giving a lot of little quotes. And one he gave was Sapolsky tells the PW torch, one of his goals going into 2006 was to reestablish the tag division. And he credits ring of honor tag team champions, Austin Aries and Roderick strong for bringing prestige back to the division. Quote, at the beginning of the year, I looked into areas where we could improve upon and things we could push to make 2006 a little different than 2005. The tag titles were a mid-card spot in 2005, so I wanted to push them into the main event spot. We pretty much took Austin Aries and Roderick Strong out of the singles ranks and really let them run with the ball as a tag team. And they are the glue of the division. Then, of course, we had the Briscoes return, which was a big boost. Aries and Strong have really come through and raised the prestige of the belts and made the tag division into a main event spot. I like this quote, Matt, because it is true, like, they have really boosted the tag division, the tag titles, I would say, and, you know, turned to something that can uh, sometimes main event shows. But it's funny also, like, the division, in some ways, is as weak as it's ever been. When you look at, again, you really note that tonight, when you got the Briscoes versus Irish Airborne, that's, there's three teams in the division. Yeah, I mean, you know, ROH is gonna, by, you know, just by its nature, be an independent with a small roster. So you can't really have that many tag teams. But yes, it's the division itself is not strong. The titles became much stronger. I think yeah. we can both agree with that. And I will say this, like, basically, you know, going by what, what Gabe said there, um, I th- like the Aries and Strong tag team, I think, was even better than I remembered. Like, they've had a lot of really good matches, and I think they really did rise to the occasion. And those tag titles do feel more prestigious than ever. Yeah, and I think it was a very smart move at their po- that point in their careers when they, you know, already done a fair bit in singles, particularly for Aries, to kind of you weren't. It, it was kind of a good place to put them where you can still push them, but you you can kind of them get them a bit of a break from the uh, singles thing. Although Roderick yeah. Strong still got his big third singles Danielson match during this whole time. Well, it's interesting because like 
Strong was at a point where I think a lot of people in 2005 were like, oh, he's probably going to be a world champion soon. Like, they're grooming him for that belt, and, you know, he might be the guy to beat Danielson even. Um, and I, I, so in some ways, it was a demotion from that spot, but in other ways, if they weren't going to go with Strong as the, a world champion anytime soon, this was a, a great place for him to be because it really kept him prominent, put him in main matches, and really let him get to show his stuff. Yeah, and with Aries, it was kind of like a completely different situation where he was the kind of the guy of, oh, we've kind of done a lot with this guy already. We've pushed him all the way from the undercard to the main event. He had his world title reign, you know, and what do we do now? That still kind of puts him in a spot he deserves, but, you know, we've kind of exhausted a fair bit of things with him, put him on the, put him in the tag division. So, Matt, our last story, and this will play into, uh, something that I've saved for near the end of the show, but, uh, PW Torch wrote, and I just love this because it's just such a sign of the times that we were in in this era. ROH now has a MySpace page at www.myspace.com slash Ring of Honor. And uh, Matt, for, for this show, you know, I've, I've been a little disappointed lately because I like, you know, getting the news bits and little factoids. And I like finding things that maybe other people wouldn't find or just, you know, aren't as obvious as just going through the newsletters, but lately I haven't been able to find them. I found something that we'll read near the end that really puts a nice bow on this entire CZW storyline, and I found it in all places. Someone had saved a 2008 Gabe Sapolsky MySpace blog and uh, anything you're, like you're, that. You're, is, you're unbelievable, Trevor. <laughs> anything like that is just gold to me I, I i found it last night and so as always i want to remind people we i haven't said this for a while if you have any little tidbits for an upcoming episode personal stories little things you think we might that might slip through the cracks through the years at gmail.com our email throh for through of course if you want us to i mean we'll credit you and uh unless you tell us not to if you want privacy we'll do that too just let me know anything you guys send to us is gold i can never guarantee that we'll necessarily use it we usually do but sometimes it's more just fun for us to read it's like oh that might not be perfect for the show but anything like this no one sent this to me but if you found something like this on your own we love if you send it to us but anyway that brings us to death before dishonor 4 it took place July 15, 2006, at the Philadelphia National Guard Armory in front of a report crowd of nearly 1,100 fans, according to the Observer. Dave usually just gives a straight number. This was one of the rare times he wrote nearly, which, okay. But anyway, nearly, uh, between probably 1,000 and 1,100 fans. The last time they were in Philly at the Armory, I think they did a flat 1,000, so yeah. probably roughly the same. So here's something that I will definitely say about this. I was at both of those shows, and I remember vividly hearing those two numbers and being like, there is no way there was only a 100 more people here than there was at the 100th show. At the 100th show, they opened both sets of bleachers, but the CZW bleachers were like only slightly open, and they were not full even in that case. In At Death Before Dishonor, they had both bleachers fully open, and both sides were packed. It looked wow. like... To me, it looked like there were a few hundred more people. Like, obviously, I didn't count, so, like, I can't say for sure, but the only explanation that I could think of there is that they, is that they overestimated the <laughs> amount of people for the 100 show. Cause I can't imagine that they're giving Dave, like, a lowball number for Death Before Dishonor, right? Like, that, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. But, It'd be funny if, it's, oh, sorry, go on. No, I just, it's, it's, it was, it just was just really weird to me because it was so inconsistent with what I saw with my own eyes as far as the difference in the amount of people there 
that I was extremely confused. I was, I guess I was just questioning my own perceptions. I was like, how could that only be a hundred people? But I don't know. It's weird. And it's good to note too that this is just like the Hunter show, like you kind of brought up there. We had this separate CZW and Ring of Honor fan bleacher, so you have this kind of divided crowd, this really cool thing. It's the last time we kind of really get that atmosphere. It sucks that more wrestling companies haven't found like like ways to make that happen because it is such a great idea. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to. Um you know, to contrive that sort of thing. Like this was something that was available to them in a somewhat organic way. They were able to take advantage of maybe some real feelings among different fan bases, you know, and probably some like exaggerated ones. Like I think probably most of the fans of CZW didn't hate ROH, you know, but um, (laughs) I'm sure some did, you know, and so you could, you know, exploit that a little bit. Um, One other note about this, I was looking into this and I'm, not 100% sure. So if someone could tell me if I'm wrong, but I am pretty sure that in this Gabe Sapolsky era of ROH, this might be the last or at least the last for a really long time non-double shot weekend. Yeah, what? they they turn into a real big – I mean they were already starting this before this, but we were still getting occasionally, you know – but this is one of the years. One of the years they, I think, they probably ran the most shows, and obviously, a big way you can increase the number of shows and save on like plane ticket costs and stuff is get two shows for the price of one. I mean, there's a reason why, like, when sometimes when PWG's most loaded cards, where they would fly in like the most talent in their heyday, would be like All Star Weekend or Bola, which would be like two or three nights, was because. You know, you can justify a plane ticket more if you're getting two or three shows instead of one out of a guy. So, yeah, we're going heavy on the double shots from now on. Yeah, and I think it might even be exclusively that. Like, yeah. this, June had two non-double shots, and then this this one in July, and then I think that's definitely it for 2006. And I, I can't, I'm trying to think if there are any in 2007, and I can't think of any. So, I uh, I think this might be it. And so we open the DVD with uh, Adam Pierce backstage in our first of every member except the mysterious fifth member, which we'll get to later, of Team ROH is going to get a backstage promo to kind of set up the main event. So we open with Adam Pierce. He's backstage. He, he has the cameraman zoom in on that gnarly H-shaped scar on his head that he suffered at the last Ring of Honor show in Philly. He says it takes him back to April 22nd, the same building they're in tonight. He says Ring of Honor and CZW can no longer coexist. So tonight, geniuses, minds that have plotted the world, he says, going a little over the top, have set determined tonight it's Cage of Death. Pierce lays out the team. It's himself, Samoa Joe, BJ Whitmer, A-Steel, and one more who he won't mention by name because he knows exactly who he is and exactly what they need. Pierce says tonight is the end of it all, or is it just the beginning? I'm, which I wonder if that's mm. him hinting at the post-match angle. I mean, it's certainly like he couldn't possibly know what's going to happen, but he ends by saying the H on his head stands for honor, ring of honor. So... I thought it was. Pretty, I thought it was. I thought it was a good promo, like a good old school, yeah. like like that's the sort of thing you could have seen on like a, you know, an, an NWA show like in the eighties. Like that was like a good like old school babyface promo for a big match. And I know something that you and I have talked about sometimes is how you especially have mentioned like sometimes when Ring of Honor does like 
good promos or hype packages that are on the show that you've already bought. You you sometimes have said like, oh, if this was so good, why they should have put this on like the show before to encourage people to like buy the next show, not the show you've already paid for. If you're watching it on the DVD, I feel like tonight though, one thing about the Pierce promo. The Danielson promo that sets up the main event angle and the Joe promo is even like the Pearson Joe promos could give you like little hints and the Danielson promo works as great misdirection. So this is one of the rare nights where the, sh- the, the, the same show promos actually are like nice little winks or, or do some lifting for the main event angle. So yeah, I mean, this I remind- the nice. way they use promos here reminded me of like the old WWF pay-per-views back in the, you know, the real old days where like it was just normal for the, all the big match is to have wrestlers do backstage promos before the big match and like i think that they they work really well on this particular show um i do also want to mention just because you know pierce alludes to it here this is one of those shows where the video wires that they put on the dvds and they post before makes a big difference because there's a lot of storyline stuff going into this the big one is like both czw's team and roh's team have mystery partners a mystery like fifth members i should say and the idea is that both teams are like, aha, our partner might be homicide. And, you know, with ROH, they clearly want you to think it's homicide, but also want you to think maybe not because homicide kept getting, you know, like teasing that he was join R- going to join ROH, but then he would get deterred from that because something would happen, whether it was the, um, the finish against Danielson at Destiny or the count out with, um, you know, against Nigel at uh, Chi-Town Struggle, and he kept walking out. And so on the video wire, he tells Dave Prezak that he has, he'll join the team if Jim Cornette grants him three wishes. And, <laughs> you know, I like that because I've always thought that wrestling should have more genie-related storylines. <laughs> How much better would Money in the Bank be if it was just a lamp and you had to, yeah. like, rub it uh, very excessively for at least a couple minutes? Yeah. Like, like a guy's hurt in the ring, he's just had a match, and you're like, just just stay there. And you're starting to rub the lamp, you have to rub it for, like, two minutes. Yeah. And you're like, then I can say what I want. You, you, if, you're, if you're still here in two minutes, you're going to be in trouble, pal. Instead um, of Instead of – J.J. Dillon, they should have brought in Gene Kaniski, and they could have called him Genie Kaniski. <laughs> or Gene Okerlund. They were both still alive. Mean Genie Okerlund. Genie Okerlund. Okay, so uh, we get our first – and this is something else Ring of Honor would only do with, with major shows generally or shows where they had a – just trying to pad the time out. Um, our first of many flashbacks. So throughout the entire DVD, you get basically every major beat of the CZW Ring of Honor feud up to now. So we start with the very first one, which would be Chris Hero's Ring of Honor debut at Hell Freezes Over. And in a nice little production move by Ring of Honor standards, it ends with Danielson and Hero facing off of the ring at the At Show, which is the same building that they're in tonight. And then they actually do like a screen dissolve to the same ring, kind of in the same kind of camera distance, which I thought was like a, you know, for Ring of Honor 2006 standards, like a nice little production thing of like, oh, you know, it's come full circle. Here we are, same building, it's all going to end here. Yeah, like parallel ed- parallel editing. You, did, you did, definitely did not get that too much in ring of honor so yeah good for them <laughs> yeah. um and that brings us to the opening match delirious defeated seth delay via submission in four minutes 48 seconds when he made him tap out to the cobra stretch this was one of those 
Quick matches that was taped for rhvideos.com. This was originally, according to the Pro Wrestling Torch, supposed to be Shingo Takagi versus Delirious. So Shingo missed last Saturday's event. Seth Delay replaced him, according to this. For those who don't know who Seth Delay was, he this is his one and only match in Ring of Honor. He's another one of those guys who was an FIP regular, but for some reason, this is his only his only shot in the Ring of Honor main card. Matt, what you, do you think about it? And he's another FIP guy that like. I feel like there he couldn't have done more than what they asked of him here. Like I had he, that exactly in my notes. Yeah. Like I don't know how much more he could have done in five minutes. Yeah, they had a short match. Everything that he did was good. Like for what it was, obviously it was going to be a delirious squash. But the crowd was hot. It was entertaining. You know, delay does some cool stuff. Flip a flip dive uh, from the crowd. He does this really awesome. Like leapfrog into a surprise sunset flip that caught me off guard. Um, you know, he does uh, another leapfrog and then a flying forearm and then up and over into like a reverse, like X factor, or I almost wrote like a harder hitting edgematic kind of. Um, but you know, of course, the delirious just hits his big moves and, de- and delay taps out. The crowd was really into delirious. This was just a high-energy, fun, short opening squash type of thing. You know, I, I really – they didn't get a chance to do much, but everything they did was good, and it was fun. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like if – you know, no, I don't think – I don't so see how anyone could have watched this match and be like, uh, Delay just – he just wasn't bringing it here. You know, he, he did every, everything yeah. he could have in the time that he was given. Yeah, like look, it, it is. It, it was an enjoyable five minute match. It is still very much one of your standard Ring of Honor new guy gets his first booking, gets like a five minute or less match. So there's only so much you can do in that. But like you alluded to, and like I said, like I don't know how he could have done anything more than than that. You know, he w- showed off a lot of good athleticism when he does that forward flip dive over the top rope to the floor. Like he almost overshoots Delirious, and he just lands. You know, flat, and this was like a hard concrete floor in what the first, but not the only giant, painful looking, um, on the concrete floor bump we'll see tonight. And it just, he was, that's, an, under, that's times, an understatement that it's not the only one. <laughs> this is one of those times where we'll, like, he, like, a guy is writhing in pain, and I'm not really necessarily sure it's completely selling. Like, it just looked like it completely sucked for him. That moonsault he does where he keeps rotating into a back senton and delirious rolls out of the way. Like, that's such a cool spot. Again, it, it's, it's crazy like this last year or so, there's been a bunch of FIP regulars between him and Jay Fury and Jarrell Clark who all kind of fall into this mold of like athletic guys who can do really cool spots. And not a single one of them so far in Ring of Honor appearances have, have I think we come away saying – like not saying, oh, th- he, they definitely earned another look. Yet none of them will stick. And in, in Seth Delay's case, you know, he he doesn't even get another match. So – um. During the entrances, this is also, I guess, in case you didn't watch the the uh, if you didn't watch the video wire, this is where Dave Prezak lays out the background for tonight about Jim Cornette wanting Homicide to be the fifth man and Homicide wanting wishes. And this is where also where uh, Prezak tells you that um, Prezak says Homicide told him personally last week in Florida that he'd only be in Cage of Death if he granted the three wishes. And then J he then this is where Prezak says that JJ Dillon has been brought in by Ring of Honor tonight as a coach for the team due to his wealth of experience with war games matches during his career, which will lead into a cute little moment later and a big serious angle later. But And 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 a, a, a quote from Dave Meltzer that has always annoyed me to this day about 
J.J. Dillon's involvement in that match, but we'll get to that later. Okay, I, I think I kind of, I think I know what you're hinting at. I, yeah. I, I can't wait for you to be frustrated with this. Um, so, and also, if you, for anyone watching this match, after the match, note Delirious hugs someone in the front row who has decided to dress up like full on Delirious stuff. So, maybe it's maybe it's that Hulk Hogan guy that's always in the crowds, <laughs> uh, and maybe he just decided when he goes to ROH he'd be Delirious. Maybe it's CM Punk. It wasn't CM Punk's final IWA Mid South match, like a sixty minute match with Delirious, where it, like he ended up dressing like Delirious for a moment. Matt Seidel ended up dressing like Delirious for a moment. Daisy Hayes, like everyone dressed like Delirious. So maybe CM Punk famously occasionally liked to see a Ring of Honor show after he left. Maybe he's like, you know what? I want a front row seat, and you know how I can do that? Just put on the mask. But you know, I guess you never know. <laughs> CM Punk may now also still need to uh, dress up and hide if he wants to see a Ring of Honor show in, in uh, 2023, but uh, depending on who's working there. But next we go backstage for a BJ Whitmer promo. He says sometimes at night he can still feel staples going to his back. He can still feel a barbed wire crown being shoved onto his head. He can still feel, feel going through table after table, but he says every time he feels this pain, it just makes him more and more pissed off. Whitmer says tonight they destroy CZW and whatever is left of Necro Butcher, he'll take care of, care of in Dayton, which of course alludes to the fact that in kind of a neat little thing tonight is for all intents and purposes, the blow off of the CZW feud, but they had pre-booked kind of an epilogue. So the next show is Necro Butcher versus BJ Whitmer in a, the second ever for ring of honor, no ropes, barbed wire match. So we will, even though I always say this is the end of the feud, technically there is one more match that happens after this. Right. It's almost, it's almost like, um, Whitmer getting his, like he's settling the personal score yeah. with Necro Butcher. That's sort of how they build that one. Our next CZW feud flashback is Chris Hero and Necro Butcher jumping the ring at Tag Wars 2006 and Jim Cornette cutting an angry promo with a bloody mouth with missing teeth, which, of course, that will play heavily into the final segment of tonight's show. Um, before the next match, Prince Nana's on, on the mic in the ring, and he calls Philadelphia the trashiest city he's ever been to. It's, it's, I, I, always find, I find this promo weird like to start because it's like he's just noticing things about Philadelphia now. He's been going there – Ring of Honor has been running there for, you know, four plus years at this point. He's like, you know, this Philadelphia place is trashy. <laughs> Fans are throwing things at him. They're saying, shut the fuck up. No, it says he's done it again. He's on his way to making the crown jewel Jimmy Rave even better than he already is. He says people have read about Jimmy Rave going to Japan, and which, if for those who don't know the context, this was right after the show, Jimmy Rave was going to start his first, or was I think he was about to start. I guess he was on the last Dragon Gate tour. He was about to go on another tour of Dragon Gate, I think, or maybe he had just been on the, I, I forget, but you know, he was, Jimmy about, Rave he was, was about on, to go on a tour of Dragon Gate is what you're trying yeah. to tell us. Yes. He, he was on his own. Uh, he was getting on the Dragon Gate train and he says, now he's hired a man who will make Jimmy even take even Jimmy even further in the wrestling business. So yeah, this was another story that was hyped going tonight. We had another mystery man story, which was that Nana had procured another new member of the embassy, especially with Alex Shelley, basically done with the company at this point. So there, there was comes. also another moment in this promo that I loved, which was he goes, he like someone's in, someone's in the crowd, like taunting him and he goes, shut the heck up, you fat idiot. Cause I'm just like, how often do you hear a heck in a wrestling promo in the 21st century? Like, it, it, I, I just I found that charming that he used the word heck in that. AEW needs to move away from the shit and bring back the heck. Yeah, um, get the heck in instead of yeah, get the f out. Yeah, get the heck in. 
Let's do it. <laughs> that, that, that'd be like a slogan for our show. That's yeah. the kind of goofiness. We, but um, so uh, out comes Daisy Hayes. She's trailed by someone wearing what looks like a giant tablecloth completely covering them. Completely comical. This is not meant yeah. to be serious. But it also is uh, meant to at least a little bit parallel Jimmy Rave's debut as the crown jewel two years earlier. Yeah. In fact, Daisy Hayes has to help guide this person to the ring because there's no eye holes for them. Um, Nana, eventually, when the person gets to the ring, pulls off the sheet to reveal it's Sal Renaro, which gets some booze that seem to be kind of the, oh, this isn't that great of a revelation style booze, which I think is also kind of the point of the angle. Yeah, so I, mean, so end- I have mixed feelings about this. I. Because, like, the last time we saw Sal, he was part of a team that had been the tag team champions. And they've decided, like, oh, actually, this guy is like a goof and a jobber. And I feel like he never shook that after this. Yeah, and actually, yeah, we, we should talk about this. Now. I put this in notes for later, but this is a great time to talk about. So this is for, from The Observer. This is the mindset of doing it this way. Dave would write, Sal Renaro returned as the new partner of Jimmy Rave as they beat Colt Cabana and Jay Lethal with a super kick and spear combination on Cabana. The deal with the team will be a remake of the Raven-Stevie Richards storyline from ECW, where Rave is clearly the star and Renaro is well beneath him. But by teaming with him, eventually the idea is to make Renaro a star. So, um, spoiler, it doesn't make Star. No, in fact, uh, as soon as Rave moves away from the embassy at the, later in 2006, Renaro is basically gone from ROH. Like he comes back in 2008 as part of the uh, FIP unit, what young, rich, and ready to something. Right? I forget how what, yeah. what it's dead for, but like he's really like never a player in ROH ever again. Yeah, and it's one of those things where so yeah, just going back to the uh, my my notes here. Let me just see if I can hear. Um, so, yeah, um, Nana immediately scolds Sal Renaro, tells him to get back on the floor as he introduces Jimmy Rave, and that's because Sal ends up being the new footstool for Jimmy Rave. The fans do their usual toilet paper throwing, and when Caban and Lethal make their entrance, they too throw toilet paper at the embassy. And when it's time for handshakes, Colt puts his hand down his own pants before he goes to shake Rave's hand, and then Sal, in a moment I thought was genuinely funny, like jumps in front of Rave's like, no, you can't shake his hand yet, and then he shakes Colt's hand, wipes off the hand, and wipes, you know, all the, uh, presumably the crotch funk off, and then he tells Rave, okay, now you can shake his hand, so yeah. um, Sal re- really taking a bullet for Jimmy here. You think, you think that was ad-lib? Because that was very funny. Yeah, probably, I mean, Sal's a pretty, I, I think Sal, from watching him enough, he has pretty good comedic instincts or stuff like this like that's the thing he is good in this kind of role but yeah like going to you i, I was just looking at my notes like in the match you know this whole match they're very clearly trying to sell the storyline that dave's writing about in the observer where you know rave refuses to even tag in at one point later he slaps Sal in the face and prazek on commentary even at one point says like Sal's not on rave's level and i had the exact thought of you matt where i was like this all would make sense. You know, it's, it's, it's a, this kind of storyline of like the abused lackey is generally gold in wrestling, but it is weird because in kayfabe, as you point out, Sal Renaro is the tag, former tag team champion. Jimmy Raves never held a title. And yeah. w- when he was ta- champion with, um, you know, Mama Luke, they did not, tr- they treated it as like kind of like a team that shocked the world, but they did not treat the team as like a fluke team that was getting lucky or wasn't good at wrestling. No, he wasn't, like, he wasn't portrayed as Mikey Whipwreck. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is like a complete regression of, yeah, he's like completely lucky to be there. He's a lackey. He's not on Rave's level. 
And that brings us to the match. The Embassy of Jimmy Raven Salvernaro with Prince Nana and Daisy Hayes defeated Colt Cabana and J.E. Lethal in 11 minutes, 38 seconds when Rave pinned Cabana after hitting a spear. Um, so, yeah, we've already talked about a bunch of the story of the match. I would say this match, though, just as a tag match, is outright good. I, I enjoyed this a fair bit. I think it brings some of Rave's healing into the match. But unlike some of Rave's other matches, it doesn't really sacrifice much in terms of pace and action. Like, you kind of get the best of both worlds here. The final couple minutes, I would say, in fact, is a really exciting kind of classic Ring of Honor Final two minutes where everyone's in, hitting stuff, you know, big near falls. And the start of the match is a little weird, I would say, though, in the sense that usually, you know, heels get heat. But instead, here fairly early on, the faces are just dominating Sal. But again, I guess that's the sell. They really want you to know the story that Sal Renaro at this point is just not on the level of most people in the company. Um, there's some cute fun stuff, though, where they're dominating him, where... Lethal does his cartwheel into a drop kick, and Colt tags him, tags it, and he immediately does a surprisingly nice for a bulkier guy version of him himself. But then they have Lethal's like, okay, I'll one up you, and he does a drop kick to the back of Sal's head, and then Colt tries. And by the way, Sal is sitting down. Colt tries to do the same thing, but he can barely like he he maybe gets like three inches off the ground and does like a, a drop kick to his lower back. So it, there's some cute fun stuff there, and I did like the psychology in the sense of. This is one of those matches where whenever the heels are in control, it's always for usually a reason. Like when it, like when Sal's in control, it's usually because Rave is interfered as the illegal man. So yeah, I thought this was a good fun undercard match. You get a bit of lighthearted fun from the baby faces. You get some nice heel dynamics from Rave and his new whipping boy. And then you get some fun, like modern indie stretch, like boom, boom, boom wrestling, boom, boom, Colt Cabana wrestling at the end. So I thought it was a nice little sampler. Yeah, no, I agree with you about pretty much all of that. I thought it was a really fun match with a hot crowd. Uh, yeah, it was interesting because, like, they do treat Renaro like a total geek in the first half of this match. In the later part of the match, he does get to hit some impressive moves, um, which is, um, you know, it's good. Like, they, they don't make him out to be a complete, like, useless uh, member of the team or anything. But, and obviously... You know, his super kick leads to the rave spear for the win. So it's not like he wasn't involved in the finish either. I also thought that Lethal looked really good here. He's, you know, back full baby face, you know, exciting Jay Lethal mode after that early part of the year where he was sort of, in my opinion, kind of a dull heel. And he, uh, he really, you know, rises to the occasion. His flip kick on Renaro was so cool. Like, you don't see that, you didn't see that too often from Lethal and ROH. I guess maybe he was like kind of adding it back into his repertoire, but it, it just looks so good here. And it's also interesting that the way they position Lethal, because they don't really acknowledge that he's not really part of the Ring of Honor roster anymore. You know, he's just sort of there and they just talk about him like he's a guy on the roster and he's just treated like a normal member of the roster, which he is, has not been for a long time and will continue to not be. You know, I think he does come back again for uh, the Jersey show the following month, but he's still not a member of the ROH roster. But he was great here, so I thought this was a really fun match. And um, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I'm not saying it's worth going out of your way to see, but if this match comes up on a, on a, a rewatch, don't skip it. It's yeah, it's a lot. It's a really fun undercard match. 
Yeah, the Jay Lethal thing, it's funny because it's almost like he's kind of just like, I wonder if they even knew that they were like, because with a lot of these TNA guys, they were really phasing them out and then doing clean breaks. But Lethal, it almost feels like they're kind of, if if you're around, if you're available, like you're a good utility guy, you know, maybe they weren't even sure at this point how to talk along because they were like, well, you know, depending on how your schedule looks out, maybe we'll book you once in a while but yeah eventually that that's going to quickly come to an end but at this point he was in this weird middle ground where it's like once in a while you can have a little bit of jay lethal as a treat and um (laughs) (laughs) uh, that's exactly what it was though yeah every once in a while Um, we got a little bit of jay lethal as a treat and uh one move i want to point out too is selver renaro in this match does a really nice top rope bulldog on lethal and i will just say not enough top rope bulldog in matches when i watch it these days like when i was watching this match i was like man that's a really cool move that you know people used to do a lot used to see that bulldogs more in wrestling than you do today well i mean i think i think i think think a big i think a big i mean i don't know like i haven't like you know analyzed the timeline but there was that big buff bagwell injury off of the top row bulldog maybe that's what deterred people from using that whole that move yeah, yeah, that, that you know what? Oh, I I forgot about that. But uh what's a little broken neck? Ah, come on guys, bring it back. Um Trevor, Trevor, <laughs> Trevor. Trevor. Uh next we get a flashback of Samoa Joe. Should I edit that out? <laughs> no, 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 we're good. I honestly uh, safety's paramount. I for, completely forgot about that. That is a good callback. That is honestly probably you could probably do a very interesting like column or podcast just about like tracking the history of like major moves like injuries that probably changed the course of like did wrestlers decide oh we gotta stop doing that because there are certain things like i was still surprised to see the famous sir after that 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 um enhancement talent i feels bad talking calling a guy a job or even that's what they were when you're talking about chad austin was the guy's name yeah who's yeah who famously won the big lawsuit after back when it was not called the famous or when it was called the rocket rocker dropper i, I um, also the rocker dropper like there was a little bit of a difference right like it started out with the leg on the neck and then like you drop down versus like just jumping and then like the, the leg landing on the neck you know yeah. So, so i mean there is a difference i don't know if one is safer than the other but it's different like in that way but you could probably you know really put something interesting together just even talk to wrestlers like you know, if you do a move and you see someone else get seriously injured doing that move, like, does that change your mind about doing it going forward? That, that, that's, that, that stuff is interesting. Well, so, I mean, um, you don't really see that, that type of tombstone with the legs sitting out, like the one that Owen Hart gave yeah. Steve Austin. Yeah, I mean, it's not like that move was so common before that, but you really don't see that very much at all. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, you also always hear wrestlers say, like, you know, a hip toss could break your neck, you know? So, yeah, it's, you know, I mean... Freak accidents are a thing. I mean, what about the Liger bomb? Like, people still do that, but probably not as much as they did in the 90s, right? Like, so, I I don't know. For those who don't know what Matt's talking about, on draws famously, D'Lo Brown was slipped doing it. Um, I don't, I don't know. Was it a fan threw a drink in the ring or it was just a random slip? Either way, you know, draws, you know, lost um, motion in his lower extremity, in his body because of, Serious injury on that. So yeah, a lot of a lot of moves like that. That unfortunately, if when they go wrong, they go wrong. But um, next we get a flashback of Samoa Joe and Chris Hero brawling at the fourth anniversary show, followed by a flashback of CZW ruling the ring at the end of the Arena Warfare show. That brings us to our third match. That's the Ring of Honor Pure Title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defends the title when he defeats Roderick Strong by countout in fifteen minutes forty five seconds. 
before the match, Nigel admonishes those in the crowd booing Todd Sinclair's pure reals explanation, saying he d- and he does the exact same verbiage he just did on a recent backstage promo. So you know he must just be in love with this because he goes, "This isn't Dungeons and Dragons or Star Trek: The Next Generation, but you fans are going to see a good pro wrestling match." And then Robert just chuffs Nigel in the chest out of nowhere. Very mean. Very kind of prickish. And then, um, <clears throat> Matt, so what do you think about this match? I will just say to start off with, I can't remember too many matches where the crowd, and granted, it's mostly the CZW heckling contingent, goes from saying, this is awful, to losing their minds in a matter of minutes. Yeah, I mean, this is like my biggest memory from this match live. It was even stronger live. Like the, like the CZW side was just determined to ruin this match. And it was so impressive how these guys were like, just made them forget that they were supposed to be CZW fans and were just like wrestling fans and like, oh, these guys are rule. Because this match, I love this match. I've always had a really soft spot for this match. Mainly, I think, because of that memory of them turning the crowd. And again, half the crowd was already on their side. But so that's, you know, but there was a, you know, a, a portion of the crowd that really, really, really wanted to heckle it. And they just couldn't bring themselves to do it uh, for very long because the match was so good. This was one of those, this was not one of those matches where they like build up to Roderick Strong hitting his first backbreaker and his first chop. Strong is hitting, you know, hot and heavy. Like, you know, like you said, he, ta- he attacks him during his promo. Strong does. He chops him very early, gets a rope break very early with the stronghold. Um, Nigel goes after the arm. I guess, you know, if you wanted to, you could maybe say like the psychology of Nigel working the arm kind of is dropped by the, by the latter part of the match. But I mean, this match was just so exciting. They, they just go with such a hot pace for the entire time. Um, Nigel uses his rope breaks, all of them pretty quickly with the stronghold. And, um, you know, uh, Nigel, takes over after that by just poking strong in the eyes and he uh another point nigel does a clever thing where since his rope breaks are gone he escapes another stronghold by just crawling all the way to the floor and that you know and then he does a strong hits a back suplex on the apron which i don't know if you know this trevor but that's the hardest part of the ring um but, I wrote in my notes like this was back like it's it's crazy to watch back like this was back when doing that was still like a huge like the crowd just that's one of the things that I think really changes the wins everybody over it's yeah. like holy shit where nowadays you just be like yeah we see that like fairly often yeah the crowd lost it at that one and you know that you get an ROH chant like right in the middle of the match which you don't usually get that early in a match um so just the crowd was just so all in on this match um they're strong. They're still fighting on the outside. Strong hits like a wildly loud chop, um, and at that point, Sinclair counts as Nigel asks him to chop him more and calls him a pussy, almost like he's like intentionally running out the count. Um, and then you could tell that is what he was doing because Nigel throws Strong into the crowd and runs back into the ring, and the crowd encourages Strong to get back. And the crowd erupts when Strong gets back in at eighteen. You know they. They have tried to do that, like pop, big pop for a count out, almost near miss, a lot of times. I don't know that it's ever worked as well as it has here. The crowd went nuts when Strong got back in the ring, and the funny part is, he didn't even milk it to like nineteen this time. He like like ran back in at like seventeen, eighteen, and the crowd went insane. So, like that just tells you how deeply into this match they were, and they just keep going with like you know, Nigel does the headstand. 
uh, catches Strong, but then the second time Nigel does the headstand, Strong hits the big sick kick and the double knees, and Nigel's nose is busted open, so you could tell that one of those one of those kicks that Strong hits definitely landed flush on Nigel's nose. Um, you know, they fight over the the rebound lariat, and eventually Nigel hits that for a big for a big near fall, and then they end up on the floor. And they kind of do what they did with uh, with Homicide, where Nigel is trying to hold him out of the ring with the front face lock, and Strong fights his way back. Um, this time, I think it worked better just because the crowd was so engaged in the match. Basically, Nigel holds on in, in the front face lock, and then DDTs him on the floor and gets back in the ring as the ref counts to to 14. And at that point... Prezak yells, what does that have to do with pure wrestling? And I was just thinking, like, of all the things to be outraged by, a DDT on the floor is the thing <laughs> that you're suddenly like, this is a bridge too far. But um, a strong almost makes it in at 19, but Nigel pulls him away and runs into the ring and wins by countout at 20. Uh, you know, I had forgotten that. I thought it was just going to be a double countout. But the fact that Nigel gets back in, I think, makes it even more enjoyable. I, yeah, I... I thought, like, as far as count-out finishes goes, that's one of the better ones I, I could, I've ever seen. It got over really well. And, yeah, this is just... its I wouldn't call this match a sprint because it's not that short, but it kind of is a sprint. Like, it's just all action, super hot crowd, super stiff uh, strikes. I found this match to be wildly entertaining. Yeah, this is a match where... Um... I don't know if it would classify as a hidden gem because when I read like the live reports reviews, everyone that watches this match really enjoys it. But, but it's, 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 not it's, it's a forgotten match though. Yeah. It's one of those matches that's completely overshadowed by the main event. But I would go so as far as to say if for some reason you're a person that like picks and chooses matches based on our reviews or just goes back and you and you go to this review, you might end up – not to tip my hat. You might be tempted to go, oh, I'm just going to watch the Cage of Death. I would say this match is good enough. It is worth going out of your way to throw this on too. Like make the extra 15 minutes for this one. Absolutely. Um, Definitely four stars, maybe even a little above. It's It's a great match. Yeah, I would go four stars too. I actually thought like the first half was just a little disappointing. Like it was solid, but I feel like I was having a bit of a criticism that I've been having a bit more with matches in Ring of Honor lately, which was it's it's good, but there's not enough kind of to it. Like like the arm, like the you mentioned the arm work that doesn't really go anywhere. There is some good simple psychology in that strong. The reason Strong is getting this title shot is because he recently uh, pinned – I mean made Nigel tap out, I believe, with the Stronghold at a ta- in a tag match. And uh, so you know he's getting the title shot here. And every not- rope break Nigel uses up is because of the Stronghold, and like they're all used up fairly early on. So that stuff – I thought that's good simple psychology, but still, it's one of those matches where they were kind of just doing the first half of a pure match, and I feel like – the CZW fans were looking for a chance to heckle, and w- w- I'll talk about this more later, but like, if you get, gave the CZW fans any chance to kind of think, they were going to heckle. But then like halfway through this match, they just flip a switch, and it is the, the second half of this match is just fan-freaking-tastic, and the crowd, like... They they can't think, you know, and the crowd is just molten hot. There, it, there's it, was almost one... like, it was almost felt like a like a great match on dynamite or like 2010s PWG, like the, the, the pace that they kept. Yeah. There is a, um, a sequence of this match where, um, it's, you know, we've seen this once while a few times, but it's 
you know, Nigel does the headstand. Roderick hits him with a running big boot as he's in the headstand. Then he turns that into he gut busters Nigel over his knee. Then he turn. Then Nigel stumbles into the ropes and goes into for the rebound Larry. Only Strong runs as he's going for the rebound Larry and hits it with the sick kick. But then Nigel just stumbles off of that back into the ropes and then he does hit the rebound Larry. And I would say that sequence, you can just watch how it flows and how exciting it is. That's like one of the best minutes of Ring of Honor had in the entire year. I would say like this isn't. I won't. This is is not going to be one of my top five matches of the year, but if you just had isolated minutes, I might have to put that in my top five. That is a great minute of wrestling, and it is just so good. It, like This is when Nigel was really becoming big bomb, so to speak, Noah, pro wrestling Noah Nigel McGinnis, and I think that style just really mes- meshes well with um, uh, Roderick Strong's offense. And Nigel even breaks out the frigging top rope back senton, just, I guess, so Roderick can catch him the back of the head with his knees. And this is a match I feel like it looked like it sucked to be Nigel McGuinness because you mentioned one kick. It looked like there was a couple different strikes Roderick threw during this match that really caught Nigel right in the face. By the end of the match, Nigel's nose is bleeding. Um, like, and that's another pattern, which is as Nigel kind of shifts into this more big match kind of style with less comedy, more hard-hitting offense, he starts really taking a power tank, which makes me feel guilty. Um, and yeah, the, you described the count-out teases perfectly. It's kind of sad like that Nigel's pure ring was almost over because I feel like we had just gotten to the point between this and the homicide match and that Danielson match where he would really started to train the fans that like, Oh, counts can be exciting, especially because we've taught them in these matches. He very easily might win with a count out. And we're starting to really like realize the potential of that. And it's almost time to be done. And I was thinking watching this match, like sometimes with, with the pure, when people brought back the pure title, brought back the pure title, I always thought like, well, the best thing they ever did with pure title was this Nigel Reign, but like you can't repeat that because it was so distinctive. You've done that before. I was watching this and I kind of realized with the pure tile still real around the Ring of Honor, Matt, we're old. This was a long time ago. Like I feel like enough time has passed. I would suggest like if I was, you know, running Ring of Honor, bring, have a heel do this gimmick again. Like it's been a long enough time. You can do this again now. And I think you could really get this over again. Have a heel that does the count teases and, and manipulates the rules. Like it, it, it's time to, you even have Nigel could even say on, he's on commentary now. You could even have on commentary. And you're like, I know, I know these tricks, you know, I, yeah. I've seen this before. Yeah. I, I mean, people are speculating and I think it's total speculation. I don't have any reason to believe it's true, but you know, Nigel might wrestle again. I definitely heard that speculation. And again, I'm not saying that's true. I don't, you know, but you know, I mean, if, if that were to be the case, what a what a great way to build up his return would be like to have a heel doing all of his old tricks and build to like a match between them. Again, that's total fantasy booking. Uh, yeah. Don't don't expect that to happen, but just got my mind going a little bit. And uh, yeah, so this is also a great match. Again, just if you want, this is one of the great winning a crowd over. Although again, it was always just a partial part of the crowd, but completely got won everyone over. Uh, the Observer would even note this in the report that Dave would write, the one note of this match is the CCW fan side tried to crap all over this match, but it didn't happen as they won the crowd over, which, yes, exactly, Dave. Um, and then the PW Torch wrote, the pure title match that featured uh, 
Pure champion Nigel McGuinness facing Roderick Strong was said to have been very good by many fans attending the event. Uh, McGuinness won the contest via countout. McGuinness has been drawing rave reviews for his matches recently, for, for his matches recently in Ring of Honor, especially his April 29th match against Ring of Honor world champion Brian Danielson. Sapolsky believes McGuinness has benefited from some changes in his in-ring style. Quote, Nigel has been real, has really been working hard and is paying off for him now, he says. He has made some changes in his in-ring style and has been improving all year and now we're seeing the results, which is some great matches with some hot finishes. This, 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 ma- this, uh, this match, by the way, I would say, is besides the Danielson match, is probably Nigel's best title defense. Maybe you know one of the better pure title matches ever, honestly. Yeah, and I would have to say these are probably the matches that probably I would imagine start to really convince Gabe that like I've got to pencil this guy in to be a world champion down the line. I would imagine like this is the era, this is I think this and obviously the Danielson rematch coming up like. I feel like this is kind of the era where you you can tell Nigel is taking the next step to being the – the only thing I will say is I do kind of miss – like I love the sillier, more comedy, more wacky European mat work, Nigel McGuinness. And that's probably more conducive to having a long-term career. I, I get uh, Yes, for- I mean I think that we can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> But but at the same time, I realize that for what fans want, for what Ring of Honor wants, for what sells DVDs, the more big bomb throwing, harder hitting, less of the comedy DVDs, th- th- those are the DVD selling matches. For like his immediate career, shifting his style was the biggest thing, and I really do like a lot of the great Nigel stuff we're going to see coming up. But I, there's also a part of me that does kind of mi- – like watching this match, I'm realizing, oh, like we really are saying goodbye to like – a certain it's almost like we're saying goodbye to a wrestler even though he's still around like that nigel that we saw in like 2005 you know he he's he's gone matt he's he's all gone but yeah i mean um, i wouldn't say he's quite all gone but you'll he's, see he's flashes all, of him yeah but no you're right um but at the same time man did it's it, it is fun to watch him figure out how to work a main event style and ha- start having these great matches all the time like that's really pleasurable to see Although, you know, again, it is, you know, it uh, it is kind of muted by the fact that you know what it's doing to him at the, physically at the same time. If, if I was a person that ever had a lot of, like, time and resources, which I don't and which I don't, uh, I would always like to go back and see if there's any, like, really early Nigel McGuinness. Because I'm always – I think it was Les Thatcher who said that, like – Nigel McGuinness is the wrestler who like made the most progress in his life. Like, like in terms of when he started, he was absolutely completely terrible. Like you would have never thought he was capable of getting that good. Like even now it's like amazing. Like Nigel's like, there's some wrestlers you see them, especially these days. And like, you see them, they're like 22 and already great. And like halfway to be like 80% to being like fully formed of what they will always be. Like, I feel like Nigel McGuinness is much more of a, he's a working man's relatable wrestler where you can really see like a continued progression for years where I'm okay. I'm figuring this out. I'm learning, like, even just like adding like the rebound Larry and all these things that would become parts of his offense. Like he is a guy where year by year, he's just adding things and figuring things out and keeps kind of going up. He's, he's a really interesting wrestler. It'd be interesting to watch his entire career in that sense. But, yeah, no, that's right. He's, he's definitely, yeah, like a, a work, a work man, a working man's wrestler. Like he just like, yeah, he's, he's, He's grinding, pounding the pavement, and just doing what he needs to do to get better. It's 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 admirable. 
And uh, this is also during commentary. I, I assume this is probably touches on reality, and maybe this touches plays into that story we, we talked about near the start about Aries just finding out he's been working on ACL tear. Uh, Prezik on commentary for this match says the reason why Aries isn't on this ma- Austin Aries isn't on this major show is that he's nursing some injuries from he and Roderick's recent tour of Dragon Gate, which. I, I imagine maybe that is true. He probably came home and was like, that's probably when he found out. He probably was like, oh, this, I'm hurting. Let me go see the doctor. And the doctor probably told him, uh, well, your ACL's been completely torn away for a while. And, and Austin Aries being a wrestler probably just like, yeah, I'll take off a, sh- a show, you know, yeah. and come back. Um, so our next CZW feud flashbacks are Adam Pierce battling CCW wrestlers at Supercar of Honor and better than our best, the latter being Claudio's great little misdirection save of Pierce that would set up his turn at the 100th show. So they're picking all the right clips here, the, 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 the highlights of these uh, of this feud. And then next, Jim Cornette is introduced and he walks up to the ring. This is obviously the first time he's been on a Ring of Honor show in months because he had that knee surgery that he needed. Um, the Ring of Honor fans chant his name loudly as just a few CCW fans chant sucks. Um, Cornette starts by saying if he wants any lip from the hardcore fans, he'll scrape it off of Zandig's zipper. Um, nice little bit of alliteration there. I give a big thumbs up. Big fan of alliteration. Um, yes, although I, do, I, I still find it slightly irritating that instead of calling them the CZW fans, he insists on calling them the hardcore fans. Like, yeah. But or the you know, garbage fans. Yeah, but you know what, whatever. I I got to get over it. That's my that's that's my stuff and I can't be dumping it all on the Devane Trombozos. <laughs> so Cornet says it's great to be able to walk again after knee surgery. He says last time he was here, he told everyone all the reasons they should support Ring of Honor. Of course, he's referencing that debate he did with Zandig. Um, he says one more reason has been added since he last been there. As since then, WWE has revived ECW. Cornet says it's proved Vince McMahon and the brain surgeons that work for him could fuck up a wet dream. And Ring of Honor is now Philadelphia's only hometown promotion, which of course gets a big reaction from both sides of the bleach. The Ring of Honor fans are really cheering, but you can tell that some CZW fans obviously don't like how he's rubbing their face like you're not even a hometown promotion. Um, Cornette tells the CZW section that they're outnumbered tonight. He says, now, every time you chant ECW, you put a dollar bills in this man's pocket. So we just we stick something else in a different one of McMahon's holes, getting the crowd to chant ROH. Wow. Uh, um, <laughs> by, by, by the way, um, do you consider that to still be true? Like if someone chants ECW, are they putting dollars in Vince McMahon's pocket? I mean, he does technically still own the rights to the name. Uh, I would say no because, I mean, they're not actively really monetizing ECW much. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you watch like old ECW hardcore TV on the WWE Network. Does that earn like <laughs> what does that do for them? I would say, but it is interesting. Like Cornet, you know, n- not particularly a fan of Paul Heyman. I would say in general or the style of wrestling. A lot of yeah, obviously, EZW did a lot of different kinds of wrestling, but Cornette's savvy enough to try and reframe, like, you know, he knows that people in Philadelphia love them some ECW. So trying to use that to kind of get the rub on Ring of Honor, you, you know, it, it's interesting that he's savvy enough to do that. Um, Cornette then announces that next time for Ring, Ring of Honor runs Philadelphia, Kenta will be here. And when he shows up, he might be carrying something extra because at a Ring of Honor show that happens in New York before this Philly show and the next Philly show, Kenta will be challenging for the Ring of Honor world title. The CCW fans at this point try to start a boring chant, which, I mean, come on, guys. It's just, that's 
Come on. Um, Cornette <laughs> talks about how tonight in the main event, the Ring of Honor CCW feud will be settled inside a cage. Cornette says to make sure things come out right, he's got the legendary leader of the four horsemen, J.J. Dillon, to coach Team ROH tonight. Cornette mentions that the match will be five on five, and he's kept one spot on Team ROH open for Homicide. Cornette says that Homicide wants three demands. Cornette says, well, actually, Homicide, he says he wants three wishes, but I'm not Barbara Eden in I Dream of G, which is, Matt, just such a Jim Cornette, like, so old reference but come on but like what's it but like uh, you know you can't criticize it for that what's the bigger genie in popular culture i mean i guess the only other one would be robin williams in uh, aladdin but i feel like i'd rather Cornette be referencing barbara eden in that case i will say that Cornette kind of touches on something i really do think which is like saying i have three demands or three requests like the idea that hansa asked for three wishes is such a like a whimsical phrasing and i love yes. that even Cornette kind of realizes that it's like you know, i'm gonna call these demands <laughs> even though he said wishes um i feel like there's something like like i don't know he's like there's there's some bit of toxic masculinity involved in that yeah like, men don't have Definitely. wishes we have exactly. demands and, and, you know, Cornette definitely will see you later. A big fan of toxic masculinity. Yeah, I, mean, um, I, think, I think anyone who's ever listened to Jim Cornette can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> so Cornette thinks giving homicide three demands would be too much power to place in one person's hand. He talks about um how he's going to have to pick someone else then for the team when Brian Danielson interrupts, getting a big reaction from the Ring of Honor fans and a big overrated chant from the CZW ones. Uh, Cornette says just because Danielson looks like what the CZW fans are married to doesn't mean that they have to chant what their wives say to them when they make love to them, which bit of a long tongue twister there. Uh, you could have done a quicker joke there, Cornette, but I also like, is that an insult to Danielson? <laughs> I don't know. Danielson's a pretty good looking guy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, that's okay. Their wives are cute, cute or husbands, whatever. They're cute because, you know, Danielson's cute. Danielson- <laughs> Danielson tells the CCW fans in a moment I loved so much that I actually put this up on Twitter as soon as I rewatched it. He writes, he says, just a great, just a great delivery. He goes, Danielson goes to the CCW fans in all frankness, in all frankness, you are sad, sad little people and you have my pity. And he's so earnest about it. It's such a great delivery. In what universe? Um, I mean, I know it was a broken record. In what universe did people, including the man himself, think that Brian Danielson was not good on the microphone? Yeah, like he is. He's just so smooth and so good at playing off things organically. You know, like obviously he did not think about that probably before he went to the ring, and he's just so good at that. Um, Danielson says, "While people call Homicide the CZW killer, the truth is no one from CZW has ever beaten Brian Danielson. He's the Ring of Honor World Champion. He's the head trainer of the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. He's beaten everyone Ring of Honor has put in front of him since last September." Danielson says, "Instead of picking Homicide for the team, a guy who will bash people with chairs, Cornette should pick him, a guy who doesn't need to hit anyone with chairs, a guy who can tear tendons, rip out elbows, chop block knees." That's a little bit of a hint again. A guy who that doesn't need any barbed wire. The CZW fans again chant boring. Danielson says he feels bad for those CZW fans because, well, he's sure Necro Butcher is a swell guy and that the rest of the CZW wrestlers are fun at parties. <laughs> they all wear T-shirts in the, in the ring and no proper wrestler wears a T-shirt in the ring. Oh, boy. You could have believed my eyes wide when I read that, heard that one. <laughs> Especially Homicide. So getting some digs in there. Danielson says, Trevor, Trevor, so I, Trevor, I, if I were you, I wouldn't comment anymore. Yeah, I, I'm not. Don't, so, uh, don't ask for trouble. 
<laughs> Daniel, he said it, not me. Danielson says, so after he stretches the crap of Sanjay Dutt, who he calls the only homegrown CZW wrestler who went anywhere, which the fans, CZW fans really don't like, he wants Cornette to pick him for Cage of Death, and then after that, he'll beat Samoa Joe, then he'll beat Kenta, then he'll beat whoever's put in front of him, be it Nigel McGuinness, Cole Cabana, a Japanese nobody, he doesn't care. Danielson says so, he so will... By, def- by the way, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but like... Um, that comment about Son- Sanjay Dutt being the only homegrown CZW star to have gone anywhere. Um, obviously, that's not true now in 2023. Yeah. Do you think it was true when he said it in 2006? I don't know. I mean, it's funny because we, we talked about this during the Zandig uh, Cornette debate, the last Philly show, where, you know, Zandig made the good point of you're saying CZW sucks so much. Look how many of your wrestlers have worked in CZW and often worked there first. Like, if you just want to establish, like, it's hard for the Ring of Honor champion to say our, your guys have never gone anywhere. When a bunch of Ring of Honor wrestlers worked CZW, you know. But, 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 like, but he says homegrown. People that like yeah, first, I mean, first, tough. first made their name in CZW. So like, obviously, n- none of the people on the CZW team in Cage of Death would fit that description. Yeah, uh, people that ju- I mean, maybe Eddie Kingston, but I guess he was more of a Chikara guy, right? But like, they're sort of yeah. like they were sort of like sister promotions. So and like, it's also I, your your idea of what what defines like really made it because you could argue he's just almost saying because he made it to TV. You know, right, he's right. in TNA at this point. So, right. but in a way, that would be kind of a cell phone on himself. And he's was the guy who famously in his game in this current title run was talking about like you know TVs for losers. I'm not going to sell out all that stuff. So, but. Well, yeah, I mean, he, was just, he was just using it as like a, a, yeah. a, a heel line here. I don't think he, think he thought it through that much. But I just thought it, it was an interesting jumping off point to think about that. Like, who were the homegrown CZW wrestlers as of 2006 and how many of them, quote unquote, had made it anywhere outside of CZW by that time? Yeah, that that is, I would have to really if I if I had known this question was going to come, I would have looked through Cage Match for half an hour to try and see answer the question. My memory is Swiss cheese. I didn't watch a ton of CZW, so yeah, I, I'm sure people who listen to the show will have great answers that they'll be shouting as they listen to the segment. But either way. Danielson says he will defend Ring of Honor like a man. Cornette asks Danielson at this point, do you want any favors for being part of the team? Brian says there are no favors are necessary. And Cornette says, I like that. I like that you don't want anything in order to stand up for the home team. And he thinks Brian made a good case. He gives Brian the fifth spot on Team ROH. So Homicide not in the match. ROH, I mean, Danielson now the fifth man. Cornette ends by having the Ring of Honor fans taunt the CZW fans with one more ROH chant. So this is a really good segment. Like, this is the kind of segment Ring of Honor didn't do often, which is like a segment that kind of shifts what's going to happen in the main event, a segment that like lays a lot of plot seeds for what you're about to see. And I think, you know, particularly Danielson did a good job laying out the case and making it seem like a monumental choice and, you know, doing some good misdirection for Homicide coming in. And I will also say this is a segment where maybe this is just my taste at this, at the point I am as a fan of my life, but I just, I love so much more the kind of withering, like, more subtle digs. Like, to me, like, Cornette doing the, oh, you know, CZW fans, let's stick things up Vince McMahon's ass. To me, at the age I, stage I am in my life, Matt, like, Danielson saying, I'm sure the CZW wrestlers are fun at parties in such, such a, like, a condescending tone. To me, that's, like, 100 times a more cutting, biting, like, put down than, like, any homophobic Jim Cornette, like, joke book joke these days. Like, oh, of course. I 
course, that of course, like, that's that, that's baby shit. Like, I mean, yeah. and not that like wrestling is ever going to be super mature, but like, yeah, of course it's better like, than than the the not like. Not just the, that's not homophobic, but it's just so cutting. Like, like, yeah. like it's it's so much more. Like, he's not going out of his way. He's just like, I'm sure they like. like I'm sure Necro Butcher's fun at a party. It's like, like he's just. No, no, so I mean, Corn- Cornette, you know, I think is considered a witty promo, but you know, a lot of it is just such like old like stock lines and. You know, like just yeah, dumb shit that you'd hear kids say on the playground versus like, oh yeah, here's a way to eat away at your soul with deeply yeah. cutting remarks at that you know an adult would no, would use to make you mad. Um, no, but seriously, it's like, yeah, I mean, Cornette's shit is corny, like pun intended. <laughs> so I uh, I don't disagree with you at all, but I do agree also that this was a great segment. Like I, I really have. No notes. It's just everyone did their job effectively. The crowd was really into it. I think this whole thing was booked pretty masterfully on this night. Like just everything yeah. played into everything. I mean, I think it, I'm I'm sure that if you ask Gabe, like, what are his proudest nights of booking in his career, uh, you know, and you know, I don't know. Maybe there's you have to ask Gabe. Maybe there's sore feelings about the ROH era, but. I, this has to be one of his crowning achievements, this particular event. You know, we'll get to more of it later, but uh, this this was so smartly booked. Matt, we will have a quote from Gabe via MySpace at the end of the night that I'm so, you are setting it up perfectly. We'll touch on this perfectly. Um, yeah, and I just want to mention one more thing. You talk about the Cornette stuff, maybe think about this. Like, I do not want – like, Jim Cornette's one of the greatest wrestling managers of all time. Oh, I've yeah, enjoyed yeah, a lot of course, of course. Of course. But – I, I also think what you were saying, like it really reminded me, like there are some things I feel like they're not necessarily made for you at every age. Like, like I would just say, like Jim Cornette, like if I when I watched him when I was twelve or thirteen, he seemed like the most clever guy in the world. And it's like just I feel like there's some things in life you just like those same jokes now seem like the easiest, you know, dunks you could possibly do. But, but also, you know, I when think you're things 12, are things are of their time too. It's not just yeah. age. Like he was really amazing in the 80s he was saying stuff in the 80s that you might not have heard from other people um you know even in the 90s to a lesser degree but by the time you get to the mid 2000s obviously the stuff he was saying got over so but it was also a lot more hacked by then because you'd heard it for 20 years yeah so um next we get another flashback this one from ring of honor's 100th show claudio Castagnoli betraying ROH in the main event. We get to see yet again that disgusting ape-shaped gash on the top of Adam Pierce's head, which is again, how crazy is that you're in a feud in Ring of Honor for Ring of Honor and you get a literal like the weirdest ape-shaped scar during a Ring of Honor feud. It, 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 like, I mean, they showed it a few times. They should have got even more mileage out of that. When you, I mean, that's a pretty crazy thing to have. But should have painted it in. <laughs> not since that what was that wrestler like iceberg put the thumbtacks in the shape of an r or like an roh on his yeah, forehead yeah, yeah. yeah this was unintentional and you got that effect but that brings us to the briscoes of jan mark briscoe defeating irish airborne of dave christ and jay christ in 15 minutes nine seconds when jay briscoe pinned dave christ after mark hit dave with the cutthroat driver so this match was a huge opportunity for the Irish Airborne early, uh, like even at this early stage of the careers. I would say even by this point, the Briscoes were still young. They were already one of the absolute best tag teams on the Indies and probably 
other than Aries or Strong, like Aries and Strong, and maybe even above Aries and Strong, the best team these guys working the U.S. Indies at this point in their careers could have the chance to work. And they get a good amount of time, 15 minutes is plenty of time to have a good match. And it is a good match, but I wouldn't call it more than good. It's not close to a show stealer, in my opinion. And in that sense, it makes it, it disappoint. Like the match, it tries to thread exciting signature moves through more of a throughout more of a mid-tempo match and then do your final usual hotter final minutes but apart from a great spot where they do a double shooting star press to the from the top rope to the floor where mark briscoe and jay christ each do one respectively the 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 end of the match is not quite as it's not really a ramp up it just it, it, it it's a little bit hotter than the rest but it's not it's good but it's not like that it's not for example like Nigel McGuinness and Rock Strong where the back half of the match they just go from like a 7 to an 11 it, it, it's it's not like that or um, even or even the other tag match on this show yeah it, exactly um and again the body of the match is enjoyable enough um, if my if my if i had to, to describe this match in two words enjoyable enough is the phrase there's no real story or personality there's no real stakes there's not really a lot of this is a match that maybe could have used some storyline the briscoes are also in this weird place character wise where they're supposed to be heels like attacking aries and strong attacking kenta stuff like that but in in a match like this apart from mark putting his feet on the rope during one pin attempt they do nothing heelish the crowd clearly likes them like you wouldn't really tell their heels from watching a match like this and then I thought the ending kind of cemented this match as the mildly meh vibe of this match, where it's kind of anticlimactic. Like the Chris hit their big top finisher combo of the top rope double stomp to the head and the Death Valley driver on the knees. Mark breaks up the pin for a nice near fall. And then he just, he tosses Jay Chris to the floor. He hits Dave with the cutthroat driver and he's like, cover him, Jay. And that's it. It's not a terrible fish. It's a guy hitting his finisher. I mean, that's wrestling. But for a tag match, you know, with all these guys, like it's just, there's something about if you watch this match, it, there's just it feels kind of dead. It, it, it's weird. It's not that the match is bad. It just doesn't hit the, the expect my expectation. And so I guess the way I would sum up is this, which is you know what this match reminded me of, Matt, is the ROH pushes of two in 2004 and to the early 2005 of guys like John Walters and Matt Stryker, where those guys were not devoid of talent by any means. But what really killed them, I think, is not any one match, but that they would occasionally as they got pushed, get put in positions to hit the home run. Like when Matt Stryker got to wrestle like AJ Styles for a decent amount of time or Samoa Joe or guys like that, and, you know, these lengthier matches with really talented guys. And they would have matches like this, which were like three stars, like eh, that's, that's good enough. And, you know, John Walters, maybe I would argue hit one home run that match with Xavier at final battle, 2003. Three, yeah, that, that, that gimmick match was really good. But it's one of those things where in Ring of Honor, I think why a lot of guys fizzle out is not because they have one bad match. It's like eventually if you get like three or four home run opportunities and you don't hit at least one or two of them, I think eventually Gabe just goes like, you know, we're in the DVD selling business. If you don't have a real good mid-card niche gimmick and you're not hitting the home run when I put you against the Briscoes, you know – and I feel like this is one of those matches where if you wonder, like, why didn't the Irish Airborne catch on in Ring of Honor? It's a match like this, I think I would point to. And again, it's not a bad match. It's just this was the time they really needed to hit a home run and they didn't. Yeah, I remember being very disappointed by this at the time to the point where actually I think I enjoyed it more than I expected watching it back. But I, in terms of the level of quality, I pretty much agree with you. Um, I think, you know, and like, Irish Everyone still does a lot of cool stuff. You know, like, the, there were some big spots in this match that I thought were 
really good. Like when um, uh, Dave Christ hit a, a Cabrada out of nowhere and then uh, rolls uh, to the corner to tag to tag Jake and then Dave lifts, lifts Jake up into a top rope Rana on Jay and then Dave immediately follows that with a springboard drop kick and just like lots of good stuff from you know from the Irish Airborne they're they do cool moves the thing is you know I know you're saying that Irish Airborne didn't rise to the occasion here but I also do wonder if you know part of it was the Briscoes because the I've noticed this of in a few Briscoes matches we've reviewed recently and I really do think it hurts these tag matches a lot this habit they had at this point which was these momentum swings. I remember I really didn't like it in the Cabana and a steel match from what was it? Throwdown. Um, mm. Like just like they, no team gets an extended amount of offense to the point where like you care when the momentum switches. It's just like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for the entire match. You think one team is starting to get momentum and then the other team gets momentum back. And I get that there's more than one way to do a tag match, but like there's kind of, one tried and true way to do a tag match, you know what I mean? Where, you know, one member of a team, and I guess, you know, you'd call it Southern style, but I don't think it's just Southern style. Like, I think if you watch, like, most good tag matches, one member, one team does have the advantage for a while. I mean, singles matches too, but the, uh, you know, tag matches have the benefit of the whole hot tag thing. And I don't know, I just think they're, they're not utilizing enough. Um, Like, there are just moments where, like, you know, like one of the Irish Airborne will get a comeback, but nobody cares because they were just on offense like two minutes earlier. I don't know. I mean, does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I also think like this match, again, like there is, like you said, there's uh, some really exciting, cool moves in this. And it's not like the Irish Airborne do anything wrong, but I will say one thing. This is a match I noticed, and I, you can bring this up again in a, in a later match, which is, Something I've noticed from the CZW, at least in these Philly shows where you have the CZW contingent is they're looking to heckle if they have time to think. And so the matches that seem to succeed in front of that crowd, this kind of divided crowd, is either they're so fast and action-packed, bang, 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 you don't have time to think. Or they're like Danielson Delirious from the 100th show where you really play into the crowd and make them like a part of the story. And this match it's kind of more medium tempo. Like, like they leave, like there's a moment in this match where the CCW fans chant, we want tables and going to your point, Matt, I would just say, if you're going to do that back and forth and not do the Southern style, it needs to be so fast and so exciting that you kind of forget about. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, 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 this wasn't, it wasn't sprint either. Yeah. I, I will say this, this had one of, I think the coolest spots of the night, which was, um, Dave Chris sends Jay Briscoe to the guardrail and then Mark comes off the top with a shooting star press on Dave while Jake almost immediately follows with the shooting star press on Jay on the other side of the ring. And I just thought the camera work was awesome because it was all shown on one camera. Like they show Mark at the shooting star press and then the camera turns and you see on the other side Jake Chris coming off with his own shooting star press. I thought that was one of the coolest pieces of camera work we've seen in ROH and I thought you know that was spot was easily the highlight of the match I thought that was really awesome um the other funny part of the match or the only funny part of the match I would say was very early on there was like a little bit of miscommunication or awkwardness with I think it was Jake I mean I think it was Dave Christ and Mark Briscoe and there was a spot where uh, like they were the Irish Airborne 
like to work wrist locks and like do things out of wrist locks. So there was just one point where like Mark was standing there and Dave like took a second to grab his wrist and Mark just sort of like paused and like looked really nervous and scared. And all that Dave was doing was grabbing his hand to turn it into a wrist lock. So you just see like Mark looking terrified that someone's about to grab his hand in a wrestling match. And I thought that was extremely funny. Matt, like right after that was like, if you don't have an image for the show yet, you know, we got to use that. And so I was like, yeah, that'll be the image of the show. And Matt recently on a different show was like when uh, Irish Airborne was making goofy fish, like this should be the image of the show. So I would say if any wrestlers from Ring of Honor have a time machine and you want to be in the images of our shows, go back in time, rework your matches, change the continuum and make goofy faces because that's. 80 gonna give you an 80 percent shot of being the image for any particular episode of the podcast that is the face connoisseur you have to admit it is funny that mark briscoe was standing there being scared of somebody grabbing his hand you know and and for people like you'll see it i mean mark briscoe i think he'll if you just watch mark briscoe like a handful of matches from any era you'll figure out he's one of the great like facial expression wrestlers of our generation like he is he is just great at pulling a face as uh william regal might say but um, a couple other things I just want to mention. Uh, it's funny, like you mentioned that too. Like the the Briscoes are kind of right now, kind of foregoing, like not doing the Southern style. There, but yet they still do some very like classic wrestling touches, like detail work that a lot of teams in this era aren't doing. Like in this match, they do very simple stuff. I know it's like one guy will apply a, will tag his opponent, then he'll apply a submission to his opponent right after he tags in and only let it go when his partner comes in the ring and puts his own submission on just to make sure the guy can't get away. Or there's a point where Mark goes for a cover and when he goes for the cover, he makes a big point to look up at the other Chris that's staying on the apron and like make eye contact to, to be basically like, if you're even thinking about coming in the ring, like I'm going to be ready for it. And just like little things like that where I don't notice them until the Briscoes do them. Cause so many teams I feel like don't do those things, you know, just very great little, if this was real kind of touches, which I, I really like. Yeah. I mean, the Briscoes, yeah. I mean, were great during this period. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but you know, I, if I was going to give one critique, I would say it is the match structure. I do think sometimes yeah. limits how engaged the crowd might be. And the one other thing I'd say is I, I said on a recent show, Briscoes, I think they found by this point a really good mix of stuff where like their offense is very cutting edge and athletic, but still feels very physical and hard hitting in some ways where I felt like the Irish Airborne, you kind of noticed a lot of the Irish Airborne stuff is very pretty and, and, and dynamic and cutting edge, but it doesn't feel that physicality. And I, and I felt like in this match that that kind of comparison kind of made them look worse. Like their offense, like it looked cool. They hit everything well, but I, it, it kind of accentuates that difference. And it was almost like, I think one of my notes was basically something like sometimes a great tag team when they wrestle a team that's not as good as them. Not only do they have a great match, but it's a match where the, the, the other team looks as good as them. Like I think the young bucks are good at that. Like people would talk about watching them against private party early on AEW and go, wow. And then they would watch private party away from that and nothing against private party. They'd be like, Oh, the young bucks really elevated how they looked. I felt like this was a match where the whole match, even though Irish airborne was not bad at all. And they looked good. Actually, I was very aware that like, the Briscoes are on a completely different level than those guys. Like yeah, they yeah. did not, oh, this yeah. was not a match that fools you. But I would um, say with a different match structure and a different mindset, I do think these two teams could have had a great match. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, if you're that sure boy, you want that match that fools everybody into thinking you're on the Briscoes level. They just did not have that match. Um, also on commentary, the, the, did you know, Matt, on commentary during this match, uh, Mr. St. Laurent and, uh, Dave Prezak are speculating about who will be CZW's fifth mystery man. And MSL says he's heard rumors of Madman Pondo or Super Dragon. And Prezak immediately shuts down the Super Dragon one. Like, I wonder if yes. he's just like, yes, did get like Gabe told him to like shit on Super Dragon as much as possible. You think <laughs> he's like, yeah, that guy's never coming back. You know, you know we be, took him out. It could be, by the way, since you brought up the commentary, I have to say, I think the Jared David's era of commentary, I think it's very underrated. I think he did, he's doing a really, really good job. Like, I, I, I think he's, he's, he's pointing out things. Like, I, I think, you know, other than that one thing, which I guess was a no-no, um, I think he's risen to the occasion very well. Yeah, he's been a perfectly decent commentator. I, I would, I, um, I would say he's been better than that. I, I see. I'm not noticing him very often. Things where I go, man, he's great. But I'm never noticing anything where I go, man, he's bad. Like he, he. Uh, so I would say he's like I, I'm probably not as high on him as you. But like in terms of Ring of Honor commentators, boy, have we heard way, way worse. And like, yeah, like yeah, the fact that he just slipped in very quickly, and yeah, he's he's been good. Um. Anyway, on the commentary, then Prazak suggests that he's heard rumors that CZW's mystery man could be wife beater John Zandig, and he says there were also rumors that Chris Hero was talking earlier to Nick Gage tonight. So, so, so I love now, that. now those are CZW guys, you know, like <laughs> yeah. those are the, those are the sort of people that just were not involved in this, and if we're talking about homegrown CZW talent, like that's that's the crew right there. But again, I appreciate the nice little bit of post-production because all the commentary was post-produced, misdirection of – you reel off five names of guys that could be the mystery man and you don't mention any Kingston, yeah. Exactly. So again, you know, nice or, little misdirection. Or anyone, or anyone in Blackout, by the way, which is, by the way, another chant that we got during this match, right? We want Blackout yeah. um, mm. from the CZW side because I guess they were probably the tag team champions in CZW yeah. at the time. So uh, next we go to a steel backstage, and if I could make an entire promo the image for a podcast, that might beat out Mark Briscoe's wacky face because uh, Ace, he is, Ace Steel is shaking a cowbell, and he says he got a phone call from Jim Cornette, a conference call with Samoan Joe, Billy James <laughs> Whitmer, and Scrap Daddy Adam Pierce. Uh, Jim says Ace doesn't – Jim knew that Ace doesn't come to the East Coast much, but they needed him to leave his gym and his family. Ace remembers Necro interfering against him when he was trying to get – and I quote, Matt – Title shots and things like this, unquote. <laughs> I don't know what the things like this were. Um, he, he goes, they, we tore down the house in Ohio and a little piece of crap like Nate Webb put him through a table and it was able to hurt my career. It hurt me that bad and that really pisses Ace off. Steele says he loves death and he loves Cage of Death. He goes, it's got Germans, Samoans, spiders, necro butchers, and Indians yeah, all wrapped up I in I was a- thinking for a second. I mean – I, I assume when he says Germans, he means Claudio, who is not German, but um, Indians. Did, did he think? Did he see Sanjay backstage and just assume he was going to be in the match? Like the yeah, only thing I could think that, of. That's, that's, yeah, the only thing I get, unless you know, there's just things about some of these wrestlers' heritage that I don't know. But anyway, continue <laughs> with this extremely excellent metaphor that he's about to make. He goes, Germans, Samoans, spiders, necro butchers, Indians, all wrapped up in a hardcore burrito that I want to taste. And now it's got a crazy troll like me. Like, it's just... he, he, so... also, he also names his cowbell, quote, Bunkhouse Bill Billy. 
I thought you said bunkhouse bell, Billy. I'm oh, okay. Sure. Well, that makes much more sense. Remi- <laughs> no, I was thinking- it makes a little more sense. <laughs> yes. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It makes a little more sense. It, made, it just reminded me of um, Righteous Gemstones, Baby Billy. But um, yeah. it's bunkhouse bell, Billy. Okay. Now I got it. So he goes, someone's going to die. I think that's funky. And that's my <laughs> American dream. <laughs> and this is one of the best crazy Ace Steel promos I've ever seen. And it's he's had some good one ones. one of the best promos I've ever seen. If you <laughs> if you want to put this on a list of things to watch besides Cage of Death, watch the uh, Roderick Strong versus Nigel McGuinness match and watch this promo. This is one of those promos where, like, if it was like a pre-taped, Building up a house show promo from with Mean Gene in 1987, it would be one of the most popular old school wrestling clips on yeah. the internet. It would be like the the Macho Man like um, half and halves cream rising to the top promo. Yeah. It's just one of those where just like he just has so much gold in this promo. It's so good. I want to watch it again right now. We talked privately, and we were saying like. You know, with HDL being so infamous now for the all out, the brawl out backstage thing, like there's a missed. Could you imagine if a major promotion booked HDL today and just had him cut promos like this? Because I think a lot of fans, modern fans, only probably know HDL as guy who helped train CM Punk. Yeah, guy involved in backstage for sure. They don't know he could do this. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't know he could do this. And yeah, he's yeah. They if if HDL ever does come back to uh, AEW, he definitely or anywhere, they definitely should give him the mic more often, for sure. Yeah. Like, could you imagine even I mean, still being CM Punk's Don Callis and just, you know, <laughs> calling the Young Bucks like little, like <laughs> just, I don't say how he wants to eat them or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, listen, listen, you can try to um, manufacture something that Ace Steel would say, but Trevor, only Ace Steel could come up with things that Ace Steel would say. Exactly. So um, our next CZW flashback is from both nights of Weekend of Champions, including Claudio hitting the muscle buster on BJ Whitmer on night one, and then Whitmer doing Exploder off the top rope through a table on the floor on Super Dragon on the second night. So more memories. And now, Matt, from one match where you would think this uh, uh, up-and-comer could have a chance to hit a home run and they don't, to uh, I wonder why I'm bringing it up here when we get to AJ Styles hitting Davy Richards via pinfall in 17 minutes, three seconds after he hit the Styles Clash. Um, Matt, this match is kind of, I mean, it's not well, I mean, well known, but it's for among people that watch Ring of Honor, it's kind of infamous for being one of the great disappointments of the era. But obviously, sometimes when we hear that so often, that can kind of affect our mindset going into watching match. You just said, like, the last match slightly over cheap because you had remembered it being a disappointment. So, what do you think revisiting this match after all these years? Yeah, this match didn't um, overachieve from my expectations. It uh, it's still uh, pretty disappointing. I and I'm trying to I was trying to figure out like what the main problem was. I'm sure you pinpointed some things, but I think the pace is one of the biggest things. Like you know, these two had such an ability to work this fast athletic you know, hard hitting style and they did do some big hard hitting moves, but they were just so slow about it. And like you said, um, you know, if you give the CZW section time to think they're going to, they're going to take that. um, They're going to take that opportunity to shit all over your match. And well, I wouldn't say they completely shit all over this match. They definitely, you know, the murmurs and they, they, it sort of gave the match a negative background, um, kind of aura to it 
or ambiance, I guess you could say. Um, you know, there was one point where they even started chanting Ahmed Johnson, which <laughs> I, I found inexplicable, but I'm sure there must have been some reason for it. But, you know, it's not like the moves they hit were bad. You know, they started out doing amateur stuff. They, they pick up the intensity with kicks to the leg. They get face to face. Um, you know, they switch control a little bit. AJ gets real intense on the outside. At one point, he stomps Davy aggressively against the guardrail so much that a fan yells, what did he do to you, AJ? Which I thought was very funny. Um, then we get a, a section where uh, AJ is targeting Richard's knee. You know, he drops it on the guardrail. Um, he, uh, he he does a lot of kicks to the knee. And that's, you know, when you really start hearing the CZW crowd get more and more restless. But once you get towards the end of the match, you know, they do start ignoring the knee stuff. You know, you don't really, it doesn't really play in pretty much at all. Um, the biggest pop of the match is probably when Davey tries to springboard from the apron, but Styles catches him with a big kick, like, you know, a real loud one, um, that way as he's trying to come in. Um, but yeah, I mean, as they get to the end, they, you know, they, they do some reversals, duck each other's kicks. At one point, Richards mocks AJ's pose, which is, you know, one of the more heelish things that he does. Um, you know, AJ hits the rack bomb, goes for the spiral tap. Richard gets his knees up for that. Um, at one point, um, Richards hits the running corner forearm, gut buster power bomb and horse collar combo. AJ makes the ropes for that. Um, AJ goes for an enziguri. Davy ducks that, but AJ hits the Pele. And then AJ goes for a roll-up for two, but then, like, flips back over, turns it into the Styles Clash, gets the win. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the atmosphere wasn't conducive for a great match because, like the like I said, the pace gave the CZW fans an opportunity to shit on it. Um, and, you know, they, they forgot the legwork. But I really think that the biggest thing was just, like, they just went too slow for what you would have wanted from these guys. I, 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 was, I was trying to think of what the main thing that I would change would be. And that's, that's it. I'm like, I'm sure you have more to say, but that, to me, that's the big one. Like, it's, it's just like, I don't know why they decided to work at that pace. It's funny. Uh, you mentioned a couple times that you had faith that I would figure this out. This is one of those matches where occasionally I have this one writing notes where I like, I kind of don't know something or like, I don't have like, or like this where I'm like, why is this match not good? And, and then in my notes, I'll kind of just think to myself, Oh, Matt will figure it. Like I, Matt will have an answer. <laughs> And you and this was a match where like you're saying I'm like oh fuck no, I don't have this I was hoping you could but because I had the same kind of feel like one thing I was thinking when I was watching this match was I don't know any story of this match but you could tell me it, 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 there's just a weirdness to the match where you could tell me almost any story and I would believe like you could tell me these two guys secretly hated each other I go oh that explains it you could tell me one of these guys got hurt before or during the match and I go oh I believe it like you could tell me they just didn't mesh or, or like like or that. Like the, there's something weird about this match where any explanation would fit. It, it's that kind of there's just something yeah, off yeah. about the vibe here. Um, but I agree with you. The, yeah, the thing about the one one the one huge mistake that they clearly made is they wrestled a match that feels like they would have wrestled this match in front of any crowd rather than like what you just mentioned, what I mentioned earlier, which is this is a crowd where they would have been much better served going ten minutes all killer go at a breakneck pace and just leave them wanting more rather than us and and another thing that i just thought of while you were talking it's like aj 
during this time, he would never have worked a match like this in TNA. You know, and, and obviously TNA was different. They were, had TV time, like the, the vibe was different, right? Part of the fun of ROH is that they could do the slower technical matches. But like, AJ knew, like, if he wanted to get the crowd going wild, like, he was gonna go real fast and go real hard. And like, he, he didn't do what he knew how to do here. And I think that was part of the problem too. Yeah, and, and for those listening, this isn't, you know, sometimes, you know, as a podcast that rewatches stuff that's a decade and a half old, you know, sometimes, usually our opinions are fairly in sync with the past, but sometimes, you know, the, this isn't the case of us, like, retroactively liking a match less that people loved at the time. This match at the time was viewed as a disappointment. In fact, I think I heard, I think it was made the honorable mention podcast. I think even one of them offhandedly said, like, Gabe was disappointed in this. And you have to imagine, like, we've talked about in recent shows how much how big of the plans they had for Davy Richards, how high on them and how they pushed him hard in the early booking in a way they didn't book, say a Seth delay. And, um, you have to think this is, this is AJ Styles second last booking in ring of honor for years. Like they were only booking him for a couple special occasions at this point, giving him like third from the top on a huge show, 17 minutes. You have to think that Gabe was thinking, you know, this is going to be like another match that just, you know, it's going to kick Davey to another level. And it's just like the most, it's, this is worse, but like, like the, the Jimmy rave matches are way better than this in terms of just being entertaining. And yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I would say this is a match where they, they don't work. They, they leave the crowd. Like we were saying room to, to think. And, and in fact, one thing, uh, Gabe Sapolsky, I guess has been doing these Twitter spaces lately where he's been kind of just riffing on thoughts about, independent wrestling i haven't been able to hear much of them but i've seen people talk about them i guess one point gabe had on one of them recently was he said the thing he hates in wrestling the reaction he hates most is not silence or jeering it's the murmur because he says that murmur of disinterest where it's like fans talking to each other where they're not even like totally paying attention to the match he says that was the reaction he hated the most as a booker because it was like i'm really you know this is really going bad at that and you hear the murmur quite a bit in this match you hear a couple of jeers like the Ahmed Johnson thing but you hear the mur- it's it's weird because like they will do something cool the crowd will pop and then they'll go back to the murmur and, and, and that's kind of sums up this match and it's a slower tempo and it feels kind of destroyed like the, the moves are cool there's lots of cool moves here I actually like kind of the vibe in the early minutes because they're really kicking each other hard it almost feels like they have like a little legit animosity to each other I like that vibe but there's just this thing where it feels like there's something disjointed about this match where it's like here's a sequence of three to five moves we do against each other then we stop then we're starting another three to five move sequence it feels very this move this is a match that feels like it comes off in chunks and when they go to the last chunk it doesn't feel like oh they've built the sign it just feels like oh yeah this is the last bit of stuff we have and here you go and it's over and yet despite all that matt i actually this was a match where i liked it a bit more on rewatch because my expectations and memory were so bad i was like oh this Which, is yeah it makes it that that makes a huge difference as we've seen over the over, through the years yeah, uh, like I would say this is good. Like I enjoy this more than the last match. Uh, like they, these guys are two athletic guys who hit each other really hard and do some cool knee offense to each other. And I enjoyed it from like a turn my mind off, but I also can't deny, still will not deny on rewatch. It's unbelievably disappointing. And there's just a very weird vibe to it through the whole way. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I don't agree that it was, that I liked it more than the previous match. I, yeah. I, I, I think, it is probably the to me the least entertaining match on this show. 
I mean, it's definitely the the match that mo- wor- like is, falls under your expectations the most, and it was given them. I mean, this was given seventeen minutes and a good spot on the card, and they uh, whiff on it. And I've seen even people like speculate like there's that moment where a uh, Davy does like the 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 leg drape DDT where AJ Styles' legs are on the apron and he DDTs him on the concrete and it looks like a gnarly bomb. I've seen people even speculate maybe AJ got his bell rung then and like again it goes to the thing of I would believe any theory you have about this match. If you told me that he got like a concussion, I'd believe you and that affected the match because this match just feels weird. But um, so yeah, we go to. A, the Observer, Dave would write, you know, at the time, again, at the time, the only disappointment on the entire show was AJ Styles beating Davey Richards. The crowd wasn't that into it, and they didn't click well together. But then Dave, Dave would add in, like, a future Observer, just to give you a sign, again, of how in how much stock, you know, Dave was buying in Davey Richards at this point. Dave wrote, Gabe Sapolsky must really be hiring Davey Richards because he's having Kenta give him the rub on the next tour. On August 4th, he'll be uh, in Long Island. Uh, Kenta and Richards will face the Briscoes. And August 5th, in Edison, New Jersey, it'll be Kenta versus Richards. So, yeah, like we talked about on our recent show, Matt, how at this point Kenta had only worked against like the top stars in Ring of Honor. You know, Roderick Strong, Austin Aries, Brian Danielson, Samoa Joe. And now, you know, they're throwing Davey Richards at which again shows you just how – you, you know, how, how high Gabe was on where he was giving him things that he was really only giving the absolute like top level guys. So yeah, he becomes what they call uh, Kenta's quote, American protege once <laughs> when Kenta comes back over. It works so well for Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe. But um, next we go backstage to join Samoa Joe and Joe says CZW's boys jumped him and then going after his knee, they tried to exploit his weakness. Joe says tonight there are no sneak attacks and there are no weaknesses. There's me. There's you and there's the cage. And then Joe sc- screams in a voice that like legitimately scared me a little bit. And I don't get scared watching wrestling pros. He goes, you're going to sneak up on me in a cage. And just like in a real scary voice. And then Joe says he will get his revenge tonight. And then he'll be coming for Brian Danielson next. And again, this is another one of those promos, a great little thing where he talks about like, you know, his knee and how like the CZW guys, you know, you're not going to sneak up on me and chop block my knee here tonight. And like, they won't, but Someone You'll else see will. What happens. Yeah, this was yeah. one of Joe's breathier promos. It reminded me almost of the James Gibson promos, but it's good and to the point, just as you expect from Samoa Joe. So, yeah. I the the promos on this show were among the best set of promos you'd ever see on an ROH DVD from beginning to end. It, it, absolutely, a lot of guys did really good work here. Um, our next easy day flashbacks: Homicide saving the day at Ring at Homicide. Hmm, wonder if that'll happen again. And then that brings us to our semi-main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title when he defeats Sanjay Dutt by referee stoppage in 1848 via the MMA elbows, whatever you want to call them, the repeated elbows to the head. So um, with this match, we get that classic, I would say, CZW ROH feud atmosphere from the Honda show more than anything apart from maybe the main event. Like Sanjay Dutt and Danielson do a really good job encouraging the crowd right from their entrances, probably particularly Sanjay. Like he tears an ROH fan sign away from him. He jumps into the CZW fan bleachers and celebrates with them before the matches even start. And he generally, I would say he just does a really great job of playing off the fans. He even does like the Jeff Jarrett Fargo strut during the match, which for a guy, a CZW wrestler working for TNA is like the ultimate troll move. I, I love that. And I thought before the match, 
the crowd's just in this fever pitch. Much of the this match is just the two sides chanting against each other. There's no one the CZW fans, I think, love to hate more than Brian Danielson. And I think there's no one on the Ring of Honor roster that clearly loved being hated by the CZW fans more than Brian Danielson. And maybe this is me overanalyzing things, Matt, but I feel like at this point, Danielson had gotten to like this John Cena-esque level with the CZW fans where maybe they started the feud legit hating him and thinking he's overrated. But now I kind of feel like they're just getting on him because they're having so much fun. Like, cause he's playing back with them. Like they're like, we boo you. Like, just like how I think eventually he'll start saying Cena sucks. And they no longer thought Cena really sucked. They just were like, this is part of what we do now. We, we play Cena sucks and you react to it and it's fun. I feel like they're chanting over and stuff, but Danielson's just playing with them. And I, 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 I feel like, no, you deep down, you guys like him now. You, you like him. Um, but I thought you're enjoying this match. It's going to depend mostly on or heavily on how much you enjoy that kind of back and forth crowd reaction, because much of this match is the guys reacting to the crowd. Even when they do wrestle until the final third, I feel like they're working this match in a way to give leave plenty of gaps for the crowd to react and for the crowd to kind of be the star of this match. The wrestling is that's here is good, but it's kind of standard. I would say if you watch this match on mute, it's, 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 it's good. It's pretty darn good, but it, it it's one of the lower, end Danielson title defenses we've seen. But if you watch the match with the sound on, it's it's very good because if you enjoy the CZW feud, um, you know, he lets Sanjay get in his he can Danielson controls the match. He lets Sanjay get up and do his stuff here or there, kind of sprinkle throughout the match. Sanjay does a nice dive to the floor. He does his moonsault double stop, which I always thought was an underrated move that I don't unless it really hurts to take or give. I don't know why more wrestlers don't rip that off. That's such a cool move. But um yeah, good match. Depends how much you like that crowd interaction. Yeah, as you could probably guess, this match was a blast live. You know, just like so much fun to be part of the crowd reacting to all that stuff. On on video, you could sort of feel the length, like, oh, maybe this could have been a little bit shorter for what it was. And you could also kind of see the missed opportunity if you could consider it that in the sense that probably Dud and Danielson could have had a great match if they like went yeah. for like the serious mode. But I think for what this show needed, I think they did the right thing. I think this was the right approach. Just like get the crowd into a fever pitch, riled up for the big main event, get Danielson over as what they called what he called himself at the beginning, the CZW killer. Yeah, he had him to have Bobby Cruz announce him this time as the CZW killer. Yeah, and like, you know, it's it's funny because obviously between the two of these guys, Dutt was the TV star, but he was treated like a total jobber here to the point where the crowd <laughs> actually started chanting jobber, and he does this thing where he looks at the crowd, he's like, me or him? And then Danielson just stands there and points, you. <laughs> like, you're, you're the jobber. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's just the approach they took. I think it was the right one. It meant that the match was not all it could be, but it was very entertaining, and like my memories of being live for it were just very positive. I just thought it was a lot of fun to be part of uh, such an interactive crowd. So I think that's the story of the match. It's the crowd. The match itself was sort of incidental and a foregone conclusion. And this was another um, show where we got the robots chant, the ROH bots chant, which was the old uh, – the it were people that wanted to call down Ring of Honor fans. That was what they would call them, like they were a cult. Um, and then, of course, you can't have a show. 
especially a CZW ROH crossover show without a little bit of homophobia, where at one point Danielson knees Sanjay Dutt in the ass, and the crowd chants that was gay, and then that he that Danielson's a homo, and then Danielson threatens to moon them like he did the last show. I I was like, moon him, Danielson, make him pay, you know, show it off, strut that stuff. But uh, alas, Matt, we did not get the moon this time, but. After the match, Danielson plays to the Ring of Honor fans who are going crazy. He again has Bobby Cruz announce him as the CZW killer. As Dave Prezak on commentary hypes up the Cage of Death match and says they'll be letting that match speak for itself with no commentary. And the Observer would write um, that the heat in that main event, Cage of Death, was off the charts. After viewing the footage a few days later, the decision was made to market it like the Joe versus Kobashi match last year or the last 15 minutes of the Joe versus Punk Chicago match from the year before or the ending of the Dragon Gate six-man this year, which is no commentary for the match on DVD. So, yeah, this was something that Ring of Honor only saved for the biggest matches. Um in one way, I'm usually not a fan of the no commentary. In one way, I really appreciate being to hear like all the the talk in the ring and the crowd reaction because this is such a special crowd and smear. On the other hand, this is a match that was so dense with story. Part of me kind of wonders if it would have been good to have the announcers, you know, talk about the story a bit as it's happening. Yeah, yeah I'm, but, I'm definitely I'm definitely of the opinion that this match should have had commentary. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know, I think it worked for Joe versus Kobashi. I think that. The big, the two big CCW brawls that didn't have commentary should have. Um, you know, not a huge deal as, you know, we'll get to. I mean, the match comes off the way it comes off, but I, um, yeah, if I, if I had to choose, I would say I don't agree with that decision for this particular match. So next, Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with Nigel McGuinness because anytime you have a, a cage match main event show, you have a weird intermission where basically it's the intermission only before the final match because that's when it's time to set up the cage. Um, Nigel says he proved again tonight who's the best champion in Ring of Honor. Gary points out that Nigel has used questionable means from time to time in his reign. Uh, Nigel doesn't seem to think so. He calls Brian Danielson a clam-digging clubfoot pretender. Gary points out that Nigel hit Danielson with a belt in Cleveland backstage, and Nigel gleefully points out that Danielson Brian hasn't done anything about that since, which was a moment where I was I'd actually forgotten about that. I was like. Like that was almost like too good of a point. Like, yeah, he hasn't done anything since then about that or mentioned it really. Um, so then Nigel then says he should be the tag champion right now. If it wasn't for the fact that he didn't have a dependable partner in New York City when he challenged for the belt, the camera turns down the hall because in classic Ring of Honor happenstance, whoever you're talking about in a backstage promo has to be five feet away from you. Um, like I said, those time, backstage areas in these buildings are very small. <laughs> except this time it's Colt Cabana with canoodling with Lacey, who's like in his arms, seems awfully close to him. Colt Cabana goes, hey, when he hears that, he's pissed off. And – when Lacey sees that she's been caught on camera with Colt, she immediately like backs away from, flees away in embarrassment. Which so playing a seed for a whole separate huge storyline. Um, Colt takes offense to Colt Nigel's comment that and says that Nigel was the one that tapped out in their last challenge for the tag titles. Colt challenges Nigel for one more match in Dayton for the tight for the pure title, asking Nigel put that belt on the line so we can wrestle one more time and then we can put all this behind him. Nigel shakes Colt's hand and agrees to it. So it's kind of interesting because Nigel's still being kind of a heel, but the way they dealt with this, it was almost like setting Nigel up to be a face because because Colt isn't like, hey, you asshole, I want revenge. It was more like, hey, you're being kind of a jerk. How about we wrestle one more time and we can be friends after that? And they shake on it. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see what their match is like, you know, with with the new version of Nigel. 
And that brings us to our final CCW flashbacks, which are Homicide fighting Chris Hero at In Your Face and Joe getting beat down by the CCW wrestlers at Chai Town Struggle. And Matt, that brings us to the main event. It's the Cage of Death match. Team Ring of Honor of Ace Steel, Adam Pierce, BJ Whitmer, Brian Danielson, Homicide, and Samoa Joe with JJ Dillon in their corner defeat Team CZW of Chris Hero, Claudio Castagnoli, Eddie Kingston, Nate Webb, and Necro Butcher in 40 minutes, 38 seconds, when Homicide pinned Nate Webb after hitting the cop killer on a barbed wire covered board. In case you're wondering, isn't that six guys per turn of five? When Matt describes the match, it will all make sense. But before we get to that, before the match, we should say Bobby Cruz gets on the mic and he announces the rules of the match. He's, and he outright says they will closely follow the old war game rules. So they're not even like doing the hint, hint, isn't this kind of like, they're outright saying, no, this is basically a war games match. Each team will send in a man to start the match. Those two men will wrestle five minutes. At that point, someone new will join the match and based on whoever wins, whichever team wins a coin toss. And every two minutes thereafter, someone will from the other opposite team will come in. At that point, the match can only end when every person from both teams are in. And at that point, this is a difference from war games. It can end by submission or pinfall. Of course, in classic war games, it's only submission. A few, um, a few major improvements with those rules over the steel cage warfare match from a few months earlier. And another big thing we should point out for people that aren't going to watch this match is this is not a cage that's right up against the ring. This is more of a, almost like an octagon style cage that leaves plenty of room between the ring and the cage, which is good because with, I think one of my flaws, I mean, I like some war games matches quite a bit, but I think one of my flaws is one of the th- worst things about war games matches is a lot of times the end is the least exciting part because it's everyone in the, even in two rings, the cage is right on you. You can't move that much. And it's so a bunch of guys just kind of punching each other. and It's almost like a battle royal. The nice thing about this match was it's only one ring, but there's so much room between the ring and the cage, even with everyone in, like there's plenty of room for everyone to just do whatever they want. So I thought that was a really good choice too with the cage of death style cage. Then um Bobby Cruz comes out. He brings out – I mean Bobby Cruz already out. He brings out J.J. Dillon to flip the coin to determine who gets the advantage. J.J. comes out in a four-horseman jack in case you forget who he is and what this is referencing. And J.J. calls heads. Todd Sinclair flips the coin and says it's heads. And I kept replaying this. I couldn't quite be 100% sure, but I could have sworn Bobby Cruz then says it's tails. Ring of Honor has won the coin toss. Either way <laughs> – Ring, Ring of Honor wins the coin toss, which for those who don't know, another cute thing because obviously J.J. Dillon managing the uh, the team, he managed the four horsemen. They fought in a ton of the early war games, and famously, you know, you know, they would uh, the the coin toss would be a big thing there. So they win the coin toss here. Um, the crowd almost immediately starts chanting for Samoa Joe. He's in fact the first entrant. The match is on, Matt. What do you think about this match? There's a lot to cover. This is one of the more story-intensive, lots-of-stuff-happens matches in Ring of Honor history. Yeah, so a few things before I start talking about the match itself. Um, so I mentioned that there's some major improvements over the Steel Cage Warfare rules. So if you'll recall, the rules of Steel Cage Warfare were very similar to this, but the differences were they made the intervals for five minutes each time, if I remember correctly. And they had pinfalls counted any time during the match, and it was elimination rules. Here, it's the traditional war games timing where the first, um, you know, the first interval is five minutes, and every interval after that is two minutes, which makes the match move at a much brisker pace. And it's one fall to a finish, which is also much more traditional war game style. And I think both of those were uh, improvements. I don't know if you would agree with that. 
No, I mean, again, it's essentially the war games with pins at the end. And yeah, I, I think that's, it was the, I think you would have hurt this match severely if you tried to add like more story stuff and eliminations and stuff like th- this was the perfect rule set for this match. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was thinking about, how much do you think it sticks in CZW's craw that they had a cage of death match every single year? And when people say cage of death, almost every wrestling fan who is familiar with that term thinks of this match. Like, I, 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 I find that, you know, it's a little bit, a little bit sad for CZW. I mean, this, I mean, cage of death always had this look, this yellow cage, but it was also like the configuration was a little bit different each time. It wasn't always this, um, this octagon thing that they have here for ROH. And it certainly wasn't always this, um, you know, this particular set of rules. A lot of the, the real CZW cages of death, you know, they had like crazy, like scaffolding at the top. They had like bridges above the ring. They had light tubes and broken glass inside. Like this, it's funny. Like this was, I mean, we'll get to how crazy this match is. But this was tame compared to some of the quote unquote real cage of cage of death matches in CZW. But this is by far the most famous one, obviously because Ring of Honor is a much more watched and talked about promotion. But I don't think that Dave Meltzer ever reviewed a CZW cage of death match, yeah. as far as I know. And obviously this one got so much buzz. So, you know, that's some context here. You know, they when Cage Death was always in December, right? That yeah, was kind of uh, a big show I'm, at the end I'm, of the year. Uh, my memory is um, – I'm not sure, man. Well, let, let's say that it is. Yeah, and I don't know if they still have Cage Death matches. I know they were still having them up until at least a few years ago. Um, I'm not sure if they had one in like – 20 you know 2022 or anything like that but you know it's it's a czw staple so in case you didn't know that context there it is um but it's funny too because the most famous cage of death is this match it's not really a cage of death because like you said some fans i've seen like season fans have been like like for sort of those who don't see the match there's weapons all outside between the ring and the cage that wrestlers can use. And like the, the, there's some gnarly weapons, but like the worst ones, the most severe ones would be like a barbed wire covered bat and some barbed wire boards. And I saw some CZW fans at the time, like, where's the broken glass? You know, like, like you were saying, like the, the most absolutely insane. No one comes out with a weed whacker for this show. You know, yeah, those glass, there, fire, like, yeah. Yeah. All- yeah. They, they, they go one notch below. They won't go that far for this match. Yeah. But I was just going to say, like, not only is the most famous Cage of Death match not in CZW, CZW loses the match, and it's not even really a Cage of Death in some ways because it's really Ring of Honor trying to have their cake and eat it too, which they do a lot in this match and successfully, where it's basically, we kind of want to have a War Games match, so we'll just stitch that onto the Cage of Death branding. Right, it's their second stab at a War Games match, um, yeah. no pun intended with some of the moves in the forks and stuff, but yeah, their second stab at a War Games match, and I think... This time they got it right. Like I felt like that first time it was like it was good, but clearly there were some flaws. And this one they're going to uh, they're going to fix those, and we'll get to it. Um, so I guess before I review the match, I should narrate it a bit, right? Because there's a lot yeah, sure. going on here, right? So of course, like with any war games match, we have two entrants. Like you mentioned, Ring of Honor's first entrant is Samoa Joe. 
CZW's first entrant is Claudio Castagnoli. And, you know, it's funny, as Claudio comes out, the ROH fans chant, you sold out at him, which, if you think (laughs) about that for a second, this would imply that Claudio Castagnoli joined CZW because CZW threw him (laughs) lots of money to be on their team. And he worked in CCW before Ring of Honor, I think. So it's like, yes. isn't Ring of Honor the sellout? <laughs> yeah, well, that that would make more sense because Ring of Honor has more money. Like the idea that you're selling, like that CCW is going to like, oh, we got the big bucks here. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna lure this guy over. The you big- can supersize that Happy Meal now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First of all, Claudio is supposed to be the most money making man as it is. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Dollar bills all over his trunks, if you didn't know. Um, but yeah, and you also, of course, get a Joe is going to kill you chant, which in one of my favorite moments, as they're chanting Joe is going to kill you, they cut to Samoa Joe smiling in the ring and he just goes, <laughs> I'm going to kill that motherfucker, <laughs> which was great. But, you know, they. I think that the um, the action between Claudio and Joe is good. You know, Claudio does some stalling. He gets the first offense in the match with a dropkick in the corner. Joe looks pretty amped up, but I wouldn't quite say he's at the Kenta three-way level of intensity that led to him injuring uh, Kenta. We're at 80% Joe, maybe? Yeah, I would say even 85%, but definitely not 100% Joe. But, yeah. you know, I, you know, and we'll get to it, we don't get a lot of Joe in this match, but I do think that Joe, for the you know 10 or so minutes that he's there, does work hard. He hits the ole ole kick early. At one point, he kicks a garbage can into Claudio's head. Um, the... Um, the second entrant, because again, CZW lost the coin toss, so uh, BJ Whitmer is the second, um, the second entrant for Ring of Honor, and in an extremely clever spot um, that you know I think BJ they probably made sure to tell BJ make sure that you do this. He brings down a sack, and of course, any wrestling fan who's been watching for a few years prior to this. Usually knows what appears in a wrestler's sack in a hardcore match. Um, and BJ doesn't use it. He puts it down in the corner. And I'm sure they were like, BJ, this is the corner you need to put this in. Um, but he did it. He did what he needed to do. And he goes to wrestle. You know, um, he goes Claudio in. They fight. You know, BJ is, by the way, in a t-shirt and jeans. Like he's wrestling punk and ace in Chicago. Um, but... They double team Claudio. BJ whips Claudio into a uh, an ST Joe. Uh, Claudio gets kicked for a little longer until Chris Hero comes out. He is CZW's second entrant, and of course now the entrances are every two minutes, so it is a pretty fast pace. Um, the um, Hero gets uh, gets a double eye poke to gain an advantage, and we get some the Kings of Wrestling. They throw Joe outside so they could put the boots to Whitmer. Um, at one point, Hero wipes his taint with BJ Whitmer's shirt and tosses it into the crowd. So I do wonder, you know, who has that particular souvenir at this point. <laughs> but, um, uh, Brian Danielson is the third entrant for Ring of Honor and he does a really great hot tag style entrance. He's just a house of fire. He's attacking Hero. He's attacking Claudio. He's, he doesn't, hits an atomic drop on Hero, which sends him right into a big boot by Samoa Joe, which was a really awesome spot. Um, Joe hits a running knee in the corner on Claudio and then throws him right into a forearm off the middle rope by Danielson. Like, just really great stuff. But, of course, it is all setting up Danielson stabbing Ring of Honor in the back because he tells Samoa Joe, he goes, Joe, muscle buster! And he Joe gets Claudio up in the muscle buster 
position, oh, excuse me, Hero, up in the muscle buster position. And Danielson chop blocks him, clips the back of his leg, the bad leg that Joe had alluded to in his promo, and that Danielson had alluded to earlier, the fact that he does those moves. And for a second, if you were watching live, which I was at the time, you were like, wait, is Danielson joining with CZW? That doesn't make any sense. But very quickly, Danielson makes sure to put the boots to Hero too, just to show, like, no, he is a free, you know, he's like independent. He's just doing it out of pure self interest. He's not turning on ROH. He just doesn't care about this particular match. He wants to uh, take out Joe before their title match a few weeks later. And so that leads to. Cornette and a bunch of ROH officials coming out to take Joe out of the ring. And as that's happening, Cornette's yelling at Danielson, like, you, you screwed me. Like, what are you doing? And Danielson, like, just, he goes, I have Joe on August 5th. Like, I don't care. He's not going, he's not doing anything. And he grabs the scruff of Jim Cornette's neck and, you know, his collar. And he's, um, and he just kind of like smirks and walks away. So and he flips Cornette off right in his face, which was great. Lost grinning. Yeah. So it's like not only is ROH have they subverted the coin toss um, thing by having the baby faces win it, but then the baby faces are now at a disadvantage. They are now at a two man disadvantage because they have lost two of their three entrants, um, and it's just BJ Whitmer by himself now with Hero Castagnoli. And now the third CZW entrant, Nate Webb. So just an incredible piece of booking right there. Gets Danielson's character over, gets Joe out. Like I said, you know, we've seen this pattern where Joe doesn't actually go through with the full hardcore matches that you expect. Um, But I do think for the time he was in, he did a good job. And I don't think anyone was mad about the bait and switch because – of everything that comes after. So now you get a, a period where ROH looks uh, like they are in a desperate situation. Uh, one of the first things that um, Webb does when he gets in the ring is he hits Whitmer with, um, I guess, sort of like it's a backflip or like moonsault van Terminator into, you know, where he, he does a backflip all the way across the ring, corner to corner. And he um, drop kicks a garbage can into Whitmer's face, and I, I guess the, his name for the move that move is the Fang, right? Um, it it's an amazing move. It's yeah. Like to me, that is like the move, uh, not the moment of the match, but that is the move. Like such a cool spot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Webb. We'll get to it. Like he was a gamer in this match in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, you know, but again, each segment is pretty quick, so. Adam Pierce is in as the fourth ROH entrant pretty short after that. He has a pretty good hot tag entrance too. He hits a spine buster, some big boots, lifts Whitmer to his feet. But again, it's it's three on two. So at this even even with the E odds even, it's actually still not even. So here I'll throws a garbage can of Whitmer's head. A Pierce goes to pile drive Castagnoli on the floor, but Claudio slingshots him into the cage. And then Necro Butcher comes out as the fourth CZW entrance. So now it's four on two. Four on two. Um, we get a backyard wrestling chant. I'm not sure from which contingent because I feel like, you know, some people might chant that in a positive way. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's funny because they're, you know, all the CZW guys are beating up the uh, ROH guys. And so Hero just takes the moment to just like sit in a chair in the ring and just kind of like lean back in satisfaction, uh, which was a good moment. Um, 
At one point, the, you know, we, we got so many moves in this match that Nate Webb even gets a back rake in on Pierce. Just so you got, you got the, 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 um, the high impact and the low impact. Um, at one point, Necro hits his chair body slam on Whitmer and goes for a pin and then looks confused as Claudio has to t- explain that you can't pin anyone yet. And I actually wonder if that was a, like a spot or if Necro literally just forgot that he couldn't go for a pin. Yeah, I was wondering that too. I guess it was the only time that happened in the match. So who knows? Um, Ace Steel is the fifth entrant for ROH, and he, of course, has Bunkhouse Bell Billy with him, the cowbell. And I will say this, um, being there live, you do not get the impact of that cowbell the way you did live. It was very loud when he hit somebody with that cowbell live. It just echoed through the um, through the uh, building, and you don't really hear that on video. But it's still a cool spot, but you do get the crowd pops for each one, which and part of that was the sound. Um, so he knocks like he knocks everyone out with the cowbell. He's using it on every single person. But eventually, Hero knocks it out of his hand. The massacre continues. Necro ends up with the bell and uses it on Pierce, and he's like walking around, ringing it. And we get basically an extended beat town until Hero gets on the mic, starts a CZW chant. The ROH fans start throwing bottles into the ring to the point where it actually made me a little uncomfortable. Like, there's just too many bottles here. But, you know, Hero's talking about, you know, he starts chanting CZW, you know, ROH is down and out. In a one of my favorite spots of the match, in the middle of Hero's promo, Ace gets back into the ring and just clocks him with a garbage can to stop the, uh, to stop the promo. And of course, everyone then gangs up on Ace Steel, and then Hero gets back up and starts putting the boots to Ace. And at each stomp, he's saying, "It's going to take a lot more than that to stop me." Um, and there was just I, yeah, just I really love, love this. Yeah, as, as he gets, I'll just as he gets up from selling, he he starts saying almost this creepy voice. He's like, "Don't worry, don't worry." And then he's like, "I just love the whole performance is great." Yeah, Hero was obviously amazing here, and he gets back on the mic and he talks about his the the surprise member of the CZW team. And he goes, um, I hate this person, but he hates you, meaning the ROH fans, more than I hate him. And he says, I don't have an ace up my sleeve, which is, you know, kind of, kind of cute considering there was a wrestler in this match named Ace um, <laughs> that just hit him with a with a garbage can. He said, I don't have an ace up my sleeve. I have a king of diamonds. And he goes, ring of honor. Here comes Eddie fucking Kingston. And like, this could be a moment where having commentators might help. Cause I'm sure that a lot of people watching this had no idea who Eddie Kingston was at this point, but Eddie arrives. He looks like a badass. He has his, I guess probably his tag title belt around his neck. Um, I didn't, I didn't double check what title he was holding at that point. Maybe it was maybe it was the world title. I'm not even sure. Um, but he immediately gets in the ring, starts hitting big boots on people. Ace Steel hits a lifting DDT on Steel on a chair. Hits the boot on Whitmer. We start getting a "fuck you, Eddie" chant, which CZW this the CZW side responds with an Eddie chant. But then the homicide chants start in force, and we get to see JJ Dillon upset outside, which to me, which to Dave Meltzer made this match way above and beyond because we got to see jj <laughs> dylan looking upset he really got the match over right there um but um we get necro butcher he hits a bulldog on ace on the barbed wire baseball bat and then hero holds whitmer for a eddie kingston chop 
but Whitmer ducks and Kingston chops Hero, which leads to them getting into a shoving match because, as Hero alluded to in his promo, those two had feuded a lot in CZW. They were like mortal enemies in CZW. So they get into a shoving match. You know, Claudio's trying to break it up. And, of course, this is the moment when the red lights uh, hit. We get the Kill Bill music and Homicide music hits. And he appears to an incredible pop. You know, I mean, just like the Ring of Homicide match, we get the huge pop to the Homicide, quote-unquote, surprise appearance. Although I would say this is the least surprising surprise appearance um, since CM Punk debuted at the uh, at the United Center for AEW. <laughs> like, is this, I mean, it's pretty much the exact same thing, where it's just like, we're not going to tell you it's, that he's here, but we basically have told you 600 times that he's coming into this match. So they made you want it while still sort of giving the surprise, but the crowd goes nuts. Homicide has this wooden board with him, um, and he walks out there. He kind of looks at J.J. Dillon, gets into the ring, and the first thing he does is just smash the board over Eddie Kingston's head. This is another moment, which I got to tell you, was so much louder in person than it is on video. It was so loud. And it sounded so insane, and I can only imagine how it sounded in Eddie Kingston's head. But well, it also the board even had the word "ouch" written on yes. it, so that told you how matches could hurt. <laughs> yes, and it, it yeah, and, and it, the the board broke in pieces, and so that was spot was you know got a huge pop. And then the very next thing that Homicide did was so clever. Um, Chekhov's uh, sack comes into play because um, <laughs> basically. Necro Butcher runs at Homicide with a chair, but Homicide gets Whitmer's sack from the corner, the right corner that Whitmer put it in. He spills it on the ground as Necro Butcher runs at him. So, you know, Necro is barefoot. He runs on top of the thumbtacks. Then, and like, so he, he doesn't complete the, the charge with the chair. Then Homicide picks up the thumbtacks, throws it in Necro Butcher's face, and that allows Whitmer to grab Necro, hit an exploder for the first near fall of the match. Just such a great spot. Like, I, I don't know who planned that spot, but it's, I mean, to me, like one of the greatest spots in the history of wrestling, honestly. Like, <laughs> how, how good was that? And then to even make it better, Homicide pulls out four ghetto forks. He distributes them to everyone on Team ROH. And, uh, as I wrote here, unofficially, because they don't use this term, but, the match beyond begins. Um, there's blood everywhere. Like, and I, you know, I even said this at the time. It was like, this is sort of like when the match really starts almost. Um, there's blood everywhere. There's a, a team forking going on. Um, especially like the crowds going nuts for Ace repeatedly stabbing Nate Webb. Um, and we just, we get, we get just big spot after big spot after big spot here. You know, Pierce pile driving Claudio on the floor. Claudio blades from that. BJ wraps Necro Butcher and barbed wire. Um, um, Pierce picks up Nate Webb and just this wild, out-of-control military press from the ring to the floor, uh, through a table on the floor, which, like, a wild throw, like, Webb, like, basically, like, grazes the table. It looked really insane. Um, yeah, like, scary. Then we get Ace Steel hitting, like, uh, he, he does his combination Widow's Peak leg drop, where he Widow's Peaks 
Webb off the top rope while hitting a leg drop on Kingston, who's being held up by Pierce, while Pierce is simultaneously sidewalk slamming Kingston. So that gets a near fall. And this is a funny moment. The CZW fans start chanting, six on five. Um, (laughs) And then the ROH fans start chanting, you can't count, because in the ring right now, it's actually five on four advantage CZW, but technically... Technically, the CZW fans are right. Um, Ring of Honor did get to use six guys in this match, yeah, not got, simultaneously. But yeah, they got to add an extra person that technically should not be part of the match, but um, he was. Um, we get a, a point where um, Steel goes for a tope on Eddie, but Eddie moves. So, and Ace actually, it's kind of scary because Ace catches his leg on the tope and basically goes head first into a table propped up against the cage. That could have gone extremely badly. Um, and that's not the only thing that could have gone extremely badly. The next thing you see is, so Pierce has Webb up in like, almost like a torture rack, and he basically spins him and drops him neck first on like thumbtacks. Uh, I, I just could not believe the amount of insane bumps that Nate Webb was taking here. I think that might have been the scariest bump of the whole match, actually. Like he basically dro- like drops him like on the back of his neck, but like onto a pile of thumbtacks. Uh, I, I, I don't li- I've never seen that move before and I don't ever want to see it again. Um, so Hero starts like pushing thumbtacks out of the ring with a chair. Um, the barbed wire bat is basically covered in toilet paper, which is kind of funny, but they keep using it anyway. Um, homicide suplexes Kingston through a table on the floor. Hero stands on a chair to put a cravat on Homicide and Homicide ends up ace uh, crushing Hero off the ropes through the chair, but it's mostly homicide going through the chair, honestly, like butt first. Um, Pierce hits a top rope elbow on Webb for a two count, but I thought, I noticed this, it was kind of funny. At this point, Sinclair is just like standing outside of the ring counting. I don't know why he was doing that, <laughs> but like, it was it was very weird. Doesn't want to get him with attacks. <laughs> I guess that must be it. Um, at that point, like finally things slow down a little bit. It becomes a brawl just all over, but not quite as many insane bumps. There's a lot of people hitting people with shards of the wooden board. Then we get Whitmurray. It's an exploder on Kingston on the floor. Hero starts climbing the cage and Pierce climbs after him. And while this is going on, Webb, who has just taken like 17 insane bumps, hits a Fosbury flop onto Whitmer on the outside. Um, Claudio, he jumps from the top rope to the cage that Hero and Pierce are on, and he hits a Russian leg sweep on Pierce off the cage through a table, and then immediately after that, Homicide hits a tope cone helo on Webb, and Hero is still on top of the cage, and Homicide's throwing stuff basically to try to knock Hero off, but then the cage keeps shaking, and could you tell if that shaking cage was fans or people in the ring? In the match, because uh, like uh, I'm because if it was way, well, it was very scary. But I was gonna say if it yeah. was fans, could you imagine being the fan that was shaking the cage and knocked off Chris Hero and like gravely injured him? Like yeah, like that's fans just if, if a fan did that, like seriously, you gotta grow up. Yeah, that's, I, I hope it wasn't. You know, I can't confirm that it was because basically the camera was fixated on Hero, so you couldn't really tell for sure. So I'm hoping that I it just it was the wrestlers and like that Hero knew that that's what was going to happen. But Hero is not does not fall somehow, and he does he hits a moonsault onto a pile of people off the cage, and 
we get a This Is Awesome chant, which doesn't totally fit the tone of this match, but I'll allow it. Um, Whitmer hits a brain buster on Hero on an open chair for a two count. Necro breaks that up with a chair shot to Whitmer's back. Um, Necro and Whitmer fight until Homicide comes in to help um, Whitmer back suplex Necro through an open chair for a two count. Then Necro and BJ fight on the apron through a barb um, um, by a barbed wire cover table, and BJ basically he just gets Necro over his shoulder, and Samoan drops him off the apron through the barbed wire table. Um, that's probably that's basically like the last uh, table bump of the match, um, because now we just have Homicide. He brings the barbed wire board into the ring. Um, Ace Steel offers up Nate Webb to him. Homicide and Webb are basically alone in the ring. Webb goes for a moonsault with the chair, but Homicide moves and basically hits his lariat into the chair, into Webb's face. Webb does a really cool flip bump off of that. Homicide goes for the cop killer. Webb escapes one time, but not for long. Uh, you know, Homicide gets him right back up, hits the cop killer right onto the barbed wire board. Gets the win. Huge pop. Um, I would say one thing that I noticed about this, as much crazy stuff as it did have, once Homicide got into the ring, the CZW crew never really felt like they had ROH in jeopardy ever again. I feel like if, if, if they book this match now, they might book a few more spots near the end where it looked like CZW might win the match. Um mm. That's the only thing that I might say about that. But if you just heard, like, the, the flow of this match was so nonstop and the booking was so clever. Um, you know, like, this is the sort of match where I'd say basically everyone rose to the occasion. Uh, Nate Webb, you know, bless him. Like, he went so above and beyond in terms of the bumps he took. Obviously, Whitmer took some big bumps too. Hero did a lot more, uh, you know, crazy stuff than he's done in any of the matches so far. That moonsault off the cage where like the cage was shaking was really, really scary. Homicide, I thought, played his role as like the savior to a T. You know, when he came in, you know, not only, you know, did he, you know, seem like a badass, but he came up with like strategies. He was super clever. He was outsmarting the CZW guys. He brought the whole ROH team together with the ghetto forks. And of course, he was the guy who saved the day with the big pin. Um, it's it's interesting to me. This is a match that I feel like its legacy has grown over the years because people loved this match at the time. Don't get me wrong. Um, but if you look back at reviews of this match from you know even ROH fans in 2006, there's a lot of like four and a half stars, awesome match, great end to the feud. But there's a large contingent of people that currently call this the greatest match in ROH history. And, you know, I, I get why in terms of if you love, like, storytelling, this is, like, such a great, um, you know, just culmination of so many stories coming together and such a cleverly booked match combined with the great action and the absolutely incredible crowd reactions. Um, you know, they keep, they you know, I, I think I complained on the Steel Cage Warfare episode about how um, these, these modern day war games just go on way too long. 
that's still the case. You know, I've yet to see a modern day war games since I said, since I re-reviewed that show that has not gone on too long, in my opinion. This is one that, you know, maybe you could honestly say maybe it did go on a little too long, but for a 40 minute war games, I can't think of another one that was this consistently exciting, entertaining, and had the crowd going for it the entire time the way this one did. Um, but, so I think that's really what's caused this match's legacy to grow. You know, I'm sure that if you go went back on the Wayback Machine and found the ROH board from when this DVD came out, I'm sure there were people calling this the match of the year, um, but not that many. This definitely is one that has grown over time. Um, and, you know, I think if you watch the match, you'll see why. Like, it's, it's, it's very special. I, like, I, I'm curious to hear what Gabe said on MySpace about it, because... <laughs> if I were, if I were him, I'd be extremely proud. Like I would say, like obviously the wrestlers were the ones that executed, and they went above and beyond. And you know there was some scary stuff, some too scary stuff. Um, you know that you know you wish they hadn't tried. But in terms of the layout of this match, I think that was the star of the match. You know the way the match was booked, the way the match was laid out, how this built to such a satisfying conclusion, um, and had all the characters play their roles perfectly. I think. You know, I think as much as the wrestlers gave and they did a great job, I think, you know, I think the booking was probably the MVP of this match. Um, so I think if you're a fan of that sort of thing, then this might be the kind of match you would say is the greatest match in ROH history. I wouldn't say that, you know, like I, but I understand, I guess is what I would say. So first that I would say, like, not to toot our own horns, but I think generally, when we have to cover like really big matches or really big shows, we rise to the occasion. I think this was one of your best match reviews. I think you did a great job. This was like, listen to like the, the Joe punk shows where I was like, man, Matt's just like picking up every great detail and telling it really well. So did great. Now I got to ramble you. on about some dumb things. Um, so I think one thing that rewatching all these shows for through the years has really emphasized for me is how Gabe Sapolsky at his best was the king of matches like this. And I think by matches like these, I mean big multi-man gimmick matches with a lot of moving parts that both reference past feuds and develop already existing or future feuds, while all all while giving you a satisfying story within the the single match itself. Like I would say before this match, a couple of my favorite like gay booking moments, not necessarily my favorite Ring of Honor matches, although they're both great, would be like the Iron Man title match at Crying a Champion or the very first survival of the fittest match where like. You know, he's weaving so many threads, but the match itself is already really satisfying. It works out really well. It, it plays off the existing characters. You know, obviously, in this match, it easily joins those that group, and in many ways, it surpasses it. Um, and another mad, magic thing about this match, and you you mentioned this, it's somehow a great War Games match while completely subverting it. Like, one thing I always say about War Games matches is their hot tag delivery systems. I probably said that during the Steel Cage Warfare match where people love the hot tag in wrestling. You, you get this great buildup of heat as a babyface is outnumbered, and then as the babyface's friend comes in and turns the tide and just kicks everyone's ass. And the great thing about a War Games match is if you do it right, you get four hot tags in a single match because, you know, the, the heel team generally wins the coin toss. Funny how that happens. But the one issue that this has is, you know, if the War Games match, if, if a heel team doesn't win that coin toss, 
I've seen occasionally in wrestling a team, people try and be cute and do it that way. You lose like the magic of the war games match, even though it does seem ridiculous that 90% of war games matches, the heels win the coin toss. This is a match I said earlier, how in a lot of ways this match gets to have its cake and eat it too. One of the ways is as you described, the faces win the coin toss, but by doing that angle that takes Danielson and Joe out, you get to have the faces win the coin toss. And yet most of the match, even at the end of the match, they're outnumbered even at the end, because even at the end, the best it gets for ROH is, is five to four. And at times, like you mentioned, they're outnumbered two guys. So it, it, it's a great booking touch to kind of get to, to swerve fans in a way and still deliver what you would want from a war games match in that sense. Um, on top of that, I, I think another thing how this match kind of subverts war games is, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of war games matches – the most fun part is the middle part. It's not the match beyond it, it, the, where everyone's in and the match can end for what I mentioned earlier, where it's just a bunch of guys staying around brawling. The fun part is all the dynamics of, okay, this guy's outnumbered. Now it's even, this is outnumbered. Now they're even. And then, and in fact, if you look at a lot of war games matches, the match doesn't go very long after everyone's in because I think they realize the fun part's over. In fact, I just looked up while you were talking, I guess I was curious, like two of the most well, received in terms of just being great matches war games of all time from wcw the company that invented it were the 91 92 war games those matches i just looked up are 21 and 23 minutes like the matches go barely over half of the length of this match and i think another reason way this match kind of subverts war games is i feel like you can almost get two matches like the the all the the entry points are the real fun storytelling and the outnumbered stuff and you get all these story touches and then you get a long portion once everyone's in. And I feel like that's when the match stuff where the action and the bumps kicks into high gear. And it's almost like you get two matches in one and it's one of the rare war games matches I've ever seen where they go so long after everyone's in and that's just as good in its own way as the rest of the match. So that's another great trick they pulled with this match. And that's from the guys, you know, doing, having so many ideas for big spots and working so hard and really putting their bodies on the line in a way, you know, guys don't do every single week. Um, so all of that. And then the booking of the match, you described all the beats. I, I think it, it is, so many touches, the things they alluded to with the idea that, you know, Joe, this whole CZW feud has seen Joe constantly never really be able to get his hands on them for an extended period in the way that you would be satisfying. And this time he's like ready for it. It's like, I'm ready for the chop block. You know, you're not gonna be able to sneak up on me. And the one time where he, where he's like on his, you know, on God, you know, on his toes for it, his own partner does you know, does it, it's such a perfect little bit of storytelling and it accomplishes so much in the sense of, you know, it, it puts over, you know, how big of a, it, it really pushes Danielson from tweener into full heel territory for the stretch run of his title reign. It puts over how important the title is and how tough Joe is because of the idea that Danielson is so selfish, but also so scared. And the title means so much to him that he'd rather like screw his team over in this huge interpromotional blow off match for bragging rights. The, t the, the company that he represents, as he said in the promo, I'm the champion. I run the school. He still would rather screw that all over just to hurt this guy because he's so scared of him, wants to keep the title so bad. You know, that's such a great twist on how it sets everything else up. And 
yeah, then we go back to the match. And, you know, even just the way the staggered booking, like Claudio and Joe, it's a perfect – Joe's the guy you'd want at number one for Ring of Honor. Claudio is the guy who turned on Ring of Honor the last time they were in Philly at the 100th show, and he turned by hitting Joe. So it's a perfect one-two. You know, Kiro as the second guy is perfect because, you know, it's the kings of wrestling tag team uniting. Then, you know – Whitmer coming in to set up Whitmer being the guy who gets beat up three on one. Like how much of this feud has been about Whitmer being outnumbered and destroyed. He's the perfect guy to be in that position. Danielson coming to set up the feud. Like it's just the, the, the order of entry even is just perfect that for this homicide, obviously setting everything up for the very end. Like, and then all the spots and you cover them. There are so many great spots. Um, just so much stuff like e this is a, this is a story like a match that has so much attention to detail that like they explained the thing like the eddie kingston thing you brought so for those who don't know at the time like eddie kingston and chris hero were having were like having this suit where they would like even talk shit of each other maybe they really did have animosity away from the ring you know they would talk and shoot interviews about how they didn't like each other and stuff like that and the feud happened in in like every indie that wasn't ring of honor you know czw chikara like iwa mid-south if they were both in the, the in a indie together they would eventually touch on that feud and so the idea of hero choosing kingston but even explaining away like i hate this guy like another promotion might just have kiro pick Kingston and go, well, Ring of Honor fans aren't going to give a shit, but they actually have him on the mic. And then you would say, oh, but it's so ridiculous that a guy is stopping in the middle of the match to get on the mic and cut a, like a minute long promo. And then as you mentioned, this match is so good. They even have a steel make a great moment where he interrupts like there's every little I you could dot and T you could cross in this match for the most part gets there. And that's part of the, you know, how impressive the booking of this match is. It's like, um, it's like a mix. The booking is almost like it's a mixture of like a great war games, but also a gr- mix with a great Royal rumble mixed with just a great, like regular, like street fight. Like it just, they, they kind of just combined like all of these gimmicks and took all of the best booking pieces from all of them. Very much like this. This really feels like the booking of this feels like the close. Uh, Matt, you you talked about uh, during uh, Manhattan Mayhem how that was felt like Gabe Sapolsky doing his ECW riff. Like that show felt like the closest he ever got to booking a show with the rhythms of peak ECW. This match kind of feels like, in some ways, to me, like more than a War Games, even him doing his riff on like peak era like attitude era pay-per-view main events where the booking and and the storytelling and the run-ins and all that stuff is just as much of, of the fun as the action and like him doing it as well as they do it like it's him doing a style he would rarely ever do and just nailing it um and i could find nitpicks like you if i really want to look like um when CZW controls after the Danielson turn, it very, very briefly goes down just a tiny bit of a notch to more of a random beatdown. Likewise, in the final long sequence of the mat- segment of the match, you mentioned how maybe it was just a little too long, the match overall. I felt like there are very brief minor lulls, one or two. Again, uh, this is me really reaching to find some things. Um, do you, agree, do you agree with me that like once Homicide entered, Ring of Honor never felt in jeopardy at all anymore? I did, but I also felt like yeah. I mean, I'm I was, not saying I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I'm just no. like it's something that's noteworthy. Yeah, there's no big near fall where you think CZW is going to win this match. 
They never put the fear into you in that way. Exactly. Definitely. But at that point, I'm more just so focused on the spots. I was almost stopping. I was almost no longer noticing the momentum or the, like to me, the story almost kind of ends once we get to homicide. Like yeah, obviously there's yeah, still yeah, storytelling, yeah. but to me, it's like now it's just time to see guys do insane. Now it's time for Nate Webb to nearly die 18 times. That's, no, that's, um, to- that's totally what it is. It just becomes like this crazy bump fest at that point. Um, another thing I, if I want to nitpick, I would have kind of like, and this kind of goes to what you just mentioned, the point where homicide comes in as a surprise, I would have loved if like that was like ROH's darkest hour. And they are really beat down at the point he comes in. But the point he comes in is when Eddie Kings and Chris Hero are like arguing and starting to shove each other. And I was like, if anything, like I I would want to be like they're so united and like see ROH has no hope to really make that cinematic moment of – and now when they need him the most, instead it's like, oh, when the ring's kind of empty and two of the heels are squabbling, now's the time. Like, I, I would yeah. kind of change that. That's me if I really want to nitpick. Yeah, and I, and I uh, guess, like, again, if you really, like, you're just being, like, super nitpicky, which, again, like, we, I mean, just for intellectual um, exercise, I guess, you could say, like, maybe since Homicide technically wasn't supposed to be a member of the team, they could have even, like, had some pinfall attempts before that. Maybe it looked like ROH was literally about to lose the match. And then homicide comes out, you know, again, this is like total like armchair quarterbacking stuff. Yeah. And my final real, real, again, I want to make clear. This is a fantastic, one of the best matches in Ring of Honor history. Fantastic. Completely unique. And from what we've talked about, how, what, how it's good, what, what it accomplishes. But if I want to give one final nitpick, Nate Webb being the guy to take the fall, I realize that's probably like the politically easiest because you know, you're probably never bringing him back. So it's like, it's easy to just say, ah, Nate Webb can take the fall. You know, he's not probably not going to argue to that where, you know, if Gabe already knew in the back of his head, ah, I'm going to bring, bring Chris Hero back and, ah, maybe I'll bring Necro back down the line. You know, let's, but if you think, if you look at who's on the CZW team, other than Eddie King, anyone else on that team would have been more appropriate to take the fall like nate webb's been just nibbling on the field the edges barely involved other than one or two matches like the idea that he's the guy who takes the final climactic fall but then i started to think well maybe they were had their hearts set on homicide ending the, the feud with the cop killing the barbed wire board and if that was the case i could see you thinking uh claudio and hero may i mean claude yeah claudio and hero might be not want to take that bump and it might be too they might be too big for it maybe or and you could say a necro butcher would probably be willing to take it but i wouldn't trust necro butcher to not break his neck taking that move like anytime necro yeah. leaves his feet you're playing with fire yeah so, I mean, did, did homicide ever do that move to someone as big as necro butcher yeah, so I, I would just be knowing that, like, when we've seen Necro take a, a suplex and he doesn't get all the way over and takes a header, like, I'd be terrified yeah. about him knowing what to do on a cop kill. For sure. I so, mean, I mean, I, clearly, as we saw in this match, Nate Webb was incredible at taking scary bumps. So, yeah. I mean, in that perspective, he was the perfect person to end the match. Yeah, and what we should mention, too, Nate Webb legendarily took so much punishment in this match they turned it into a storyline in the latter days of evolve where nate webb worked one match for evolve against austin theory of all people and they had this twitter storyline that actually worked people although i'm sure it's probably based on truth where gabe's apology was like apologizing for not booking nate webb after all he did in but, this match but did you see that several years later like maybe even like just last year webb was again like on twitter like furious at gabe for you know, and you're like, well, and, and saying, saying, and they, saying they, like, I wish that I had never, you know, I forget the exact, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like, you know, I shouldn't have like done so much for ROH, you know, stuff yeah. like that. 
he regrets giving so much for what was essentially like a one-off. And well, I'm sure again, I'm sure it was real emotions that they turned to a storyline, but clearly it's based on real emotions. And afterwards, especially since he only worked one match for Evolve, like I can see him thinking again, I got what one match of Evolve out of this, but. And, and, and let's be let's be honest. He should have gotten more. And I think Gabe, in, at least in the storyline for the Evolve thing, he admitted like like Nate Webb should have gotten more from this. I mean, I know he doesn't quite fit, you know, some of the things RH looks for in a wrestler, but he was a perfectly solid indie wrestler. And with how much uh, the guy, it almost feels like you. I almost feel in moments watching this match borderline guilty because I've rarely seen a, a wrestler sacrifice so much for a feud where he's so on the fringes of it and he gets so, nothing out of it going forward. Yeah, like, no, it's, it's, it was, it was not right, honestly, but y- yeah. So, um, and I even like, you know, the thing other people complain, about. I even like the fact that ring of honor got six wrestlers to ring of honor to CZW's five and the CZW actually met chance that, like you said, because it gives both sides an out. Yeah, like, yeah, it was very the Ring clever. of Honor fans could say, look, we were always outnumbered the entire match. Even at the end, it was only five to four, but the CCW fans could say, look, you got to use six guys over the course of the match. That's not fair. So both sides can kind of go away saying our team, you know, deserve to win, which again, it's a, it's a nice little wrinkle. Again, it's another little I dotted T crossed moment. Um, this match is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's one of the best gimmick matches Ring of Honor ever did. One of the best feud enders of the generation, you know, I would say in all of wrestling. It's Gabe Zapolsky in some ways at his best. So many threads coming together. I can see if you are not invested in the characters and the story, you not liking the first part of the match quite as much until we get to everyone in. And I can see if you're not into hardcore stuff, maybe you not liking the end quite as much, but I really think it's just fantastic. Like that's me looking for, I, I can see people that don't aren't as high on it as a lot of us. And like how you said at the time, it's kind of grown than telling. I can see why people might not put it in that pantheon of the all time greatest ROH matches. But if you get, if, if, if it, if it hits your tastes, if you know the characters, Man, it's good. It's it's so good. So, so let me ask you this: um, Would you go five stars? Yes. Okay. I would go five stars. That was a, that's why I want to think probably one of the easiest yeses I've ever gotten from you on that one. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll. Here's the problem, Matt. I was thinking when I watched this, match, I said, "Fuck, it's going to be hard to do our year end match of the year thing because we got more great matches coming. We've had some already, and I don't think we've ever had more of them. Like it's really just what." style are you in the mood for because think about like the dragon gate six man is so much different than this which is gonna be so much different so different than the nigel danielson or the danielson kenta matches like this is gonna be a year where really you can't say one match is better than the other as much as just what suits your tastes more i think because yeah, but, that, but, that, but that's so what you different. want that's what you want right yeah yeah um i'm just looking over my notes for uh things uh the, oh, I'm looking at my notes just for little offhanded uh, asides I made. Uh, one I liked was uh, um, at one point a uh, Necro enters and there's no one. In, everyone in the ring's already been beat down and selling, and so Necro just kind of looks around for like 20 seconds, like who, <laughs> who, who can I hit here? Like everyone's selling shit, and then he finally finds somebody, which I thought was a funny moment. Um, uh, also, a great moment I thought was. 
I guess we'll get to this when I read the Dave quote, but I know you're – I will say even though, yes, Dave does overstate the importance of, of J.J. Dillon, I will say a highlight of this match is when Homicide comes out, Julius Smokes comes out with him, and like J.J. Dillon is looking stunned and looking and uh, uh, Julius Smokes being Julius Smokes. I thought like that's one of those great – I can't believe these two human beings are in the same universe, let alone occupying the same space and time moments where it's like <laughs> Julius Smokes next to JJ Dillon wearing like a four horseman jacket. I'm like, like I was, I would give anything to know what was going through JJ Dillon's mind for real at that moment. Yeah. 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 But, um, also, Homicide in a full jumpsuit, which it kind of brings back to his natural born killer days, except instead of an orange jumpsuit, it's like a navy blue one. I thought that was yeah. a cool, again, another thing that just makes this match seem a little special. You know, you're doing things you wouldn't normally do. You bring out the different gear. I, I thought that was a neat po- point. Um, Chris, I mean, Whitmer brainbustering Chris Hero onto an open chair. Like, how many times has Chris Hero ever taken a bump like that? I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, holy shit. Um, all of that is amazing. So now we can get to some notes, Matt, and I'll save the best for last. But first, PW Torch, Gabe Sapolsky tells the Torch that the Cage of Death match captured the spirit of the old ECW. Cage of Death was absolutely insane, he says. If anyone is hoping to see the spirit of the old ECW before it became a WWE product, they need to see this match. In fact, they need to see this whole feud. The crowd was nuts, and everyone in the match went above and beyond the Call of Duty. Now that the CCW versus ROH feud is over, Sapolsky says that he hopes to maintain the increased Philadelphia audience by continuing to run quality shows in the market. Quote, I think we will maintain the audience as long as we keep the quality shows coming. He says, if we can keep people's interest, they will keep coming. Um, I don't think they're ever going to capture the highs of this. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the game admitting that a little bit later. This is so much, so much better than ECW matches. Like, yeah, I like yeah, ECW, I was, I was, but like ECW but, never had like a long, like nuanced match that would maintain this level of excitement the whole time. Like, I, I, I kind of think about the night the line was crossed, but if you watch that match back, even like five years later, it, it didn't hold up anymore. Like this is now we're talking about 17 years. Yeah. And it's funny, like there's anything that dates that show. It's the ECW references between that quote and the Jim Cornette thing, because it's like, would Gabe really make that? I mean, he was from ECW and this was yeah, a I mean, hardcore yeah, style match. You know, Gabe definitely, you know, uh, held put ECW on a pedestal because it was, you know, how he got into the business. And like, so I get it from him, from his perspective. But you also get this is when ECW was on everyone's mind because WWE had just relaunched it. So any chance to say, look, this is what we're doing that they're not like they can't do it like we can. Um, And so referencing – but even as – I think as we've said, the better comparisons are both one to classic war games and two, the kind of classic mainstream WWE – WCW pay-per-view story matches of the late nineties. Like that's what they're really doing. But I guess that's maybe doesn't seem as sexy of a, like a, you know, we're doing what WWE does, but when they did it really good, like it's probably not a, a sexy anti-establishment. Yeah. Yeah. You can't boast. say that. <laughs> um, so, and then we get to Dave Meltzer and this was one of those matches where, if Ring of Honor had a match that they thought was, oh, this is great, this is going to sell DVDs, occasionally they would get the rough edit and send that to Dave before the DVD would even come out and Dave would review it. That's one of these matches for here. Dave reviewed it. So he wrote, I had a chance to see the Cage of Death match and post-match angle from July 15th in Philadelphia. 
This was an amazing spectacle. I'm not into the carve them up and sick bumps into barbed wire style pro wrestling, but you can't deny it was an emo- incredibly emotional battle that built into an incredible match with super crowd heat. The match had a great story, and while some of the guys are hardly great wrestlers, it came off like a war should. Nate Webb and Necro Butcher took some sick punishment, although nothing they haven't done before, which if I was reading that, I was one of them, I'd be like, Dave, come on, don't. Don't downplay it. Um, but they rarely do it in this kind of emotion of an emotional setting. It's one of those deals where you watch a match and see the guys and think they aren't very good. But you can't deny the match itself is excellent due to the story and heat. The six spots at least came at the right time. Among the highlights were Whitmer giving Eddie Kingston an exploder on a garbage can on the floor. Hero did a moonsault off the top of the cage onto a, the floor on a group of whole people. There were numerous sick bumps into barbed wire, onto chairs, thumbtacks, and more. It was an old-style blood bath except they were out there for more than 40 minutes killing themselves it was also good how they got joe and danielson out of the picture early in the match because it was mostly pierce and bj whitmer and later a steel getting destroyed by the czw group the dueling fans helped the atmosphere as well because in a sense even though the bring of honor guys were the faces there was a little bit of a dual role playing because there was a side of czw fans and they were very into it the dvd will probably be out in about a month if you want to see a violent brawl that isn't just a collection of sick bumps with no storyline or build or any feel of being a competitive fight plus a greatly executed final angle by real pros at this, you'll probably enjoy it a hell of a lot. If you want to see great wrestlers do a great wrestling match and you don't like overuse of weapons and blood, you may be in awe, but it's definitely not your cup of tea. And Matt, I will say for the post-match angle, the JD Dillon comment, but I mean, I do. I, I think Dave did not end up giving a star ring for this, which feels like kind of a cop out. I wonder if he would have gone the whole five because this was a classic there, Dave. I don't think Dave would have. Dave would have, based on that review, given him given it five stars. And also yeah. the fact that like, the way he reviewed matches back then, I don't think so. I also think that if he reviewed that match and it was like 2015 PWG instead of 2006 ROH, he would not have all the backhanded snipes that he included in that, which he loved to do when he praised ROH matches. Like these guys aren't actually good, which bothers me yeah. to no end because obviously he had every- mostly, yeah. So oh, go, sorry. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was because he had mostly moved off of that by now, but I feel like the CZW you guys, he probably just looked at Nate Webb and, and Necro Butcher and was like, eh, I can make this comment again. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I hate that stuff. Um, but no, I don't think that was a match. Like I don't, based on the way he wrote that, I don't think that's a five star review from him. Um, but you know, cause I think there's like, you know, there was just a lot of like little nitpicks that he included in that, despite calling it an incredible spectacle. Um, I, th- I, th- I think that he would, I think that he would appreciate this match more now than he did then. Although I, I completely agree that he would have given the wrestlers themselves more credit, but the stuff about like anyone who's been a longtime reader of Dave Meltzer knows that's a very classic Dave review of I don't like this kind of hardcore match, but it's so good I have to get because like like that John Moxley Kenny Omega match like that remember that review got some controversy that lights out match because Dave was basically did a review that was like I hated this match but I'm still giving it a ton of stars like Dave is very conflicted about these kinds of matches this is clearly not his thing. But he realizes when they're still done well enough. So I think that part of the review would have stayed even today. But I, yeah, I, th- I, I don't think, think he would have done the snipes. I kind of feel the same way as Dave, honestly, about that. It's like, like you mentioned, like I feel guilty, like talking about how amazing these matches are where guys are just killing themselves. You know, like, and I, I will say, sorry, I, no. I do feel, oh no, I was, we're just, <laughs> there's so much to say. I, I will say, I feel more guilty in indies because it's one of such a weird wrestling logic that wrestlers and us fans have, but like, 
if you're making a lot of money and you do something really risky or physically hurtful, I feel like, well, at least you're getting paid well for it. When you watch a match like on the indies, you're like, how much money are you getting for this? You know, you're and, not getting long term yeah, jobs. And yeah, and like, how is um, how are you covering the medical expenses? You know, like yeah. beyond just like the you know you're get, being paid for your value. It's like you can't even deal with the stuff that this match is doing to you. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a a moral dilemma for a yeah. fan. Which is weird because you should say, well, the risking your body is risking your body no matter what. But you just feel better about it when you know guys are making six figures and have health insurance, you know, than yeah, of course. when they're working for a few oh, a thousand people. But um so then Dave has an interesting note in the observer too. There is nothing to stories that Joe being quote unquote injured as in storyline in the cage of death match had to do with resting him for the TNA pay-per-view the next day. As a lot of fans figured it was just an angle to build up Danielson versus Joe plus a way to get Joe out of the picture in the, in that match as he couldn't be there at the end due to the angle planned. There's also nothing to stories that wrestlers who sign TNA contracts right now won't be given belts. Austin Aries is tag champ. And when he loses, it won't have anything to do with TNA since the snowstorm debacle which did cause heat there have been no problems with tna and ring of honor and tna has never said anything to ring of honor about how they book tna contracted talent tna simply doesn't care that for example jim Cornette is the face of the company as a baby face on their television while here he's going to play heel commissioner so that's a very interesting thing too because maybe that's true but ring of honor guy tna guys in ring of honor are including homicide are out within a few months of the next year Cornette's out i think before the end of this year and like I, I I don't know if I believe that about Joe. Like it does work perfectly for the story, but they I do think we've seen on some shows, especially on shows where the next night Joe has to go do a TNA pay per view, they found ways to write Joe out where he doesn't have to do that much. Yeah, I mean it's, um, it's definitely a pattern. Whatever you want to say, like whatever the reasons are, it's a pattern. I agree with what you said during the review, though, where I think they gave you enough of Joe to not feel like he got shafted here. And I think he worked hard enough to not feel like it was mailed in. And it, the story hooks really gave it a great justification. But looking at this, like, unless I had read that from Dave, and again, I'm still kind of questioning it, I would say this is also partly we're in the Joe era where he's not going to be giving 100% here always. And Ring of Honor understands that. And they're going to give him reasons to not have to do that. So. Matt, before we go to the final angle, which big angle, um, I think we should sum up the full ECW feud and uh, I mean CZW Ring of Honor feud, and then I'll read the game thing, which I think is a great quote. So I just want to say, um, I think most of the people who have seen it would say that the Ring of Honor CZW feud is one of the best feuds of the last twenty years of wrestling, and probably one of the better interpromotional feuds of all time. And I would agree. And we've talked before about one of the reasons, like some of the reasons is like the atmosphere they cultivated where even though wrestling is fake, they made a feud about a real thing where there were some, not all, but some CCW fans are RH fans who really hate each other. There was a legit difference in styles. So that's an example of wrestling. You can, even though when everyone knows it's fake, it can still be about real things sometimes. And that's when it, it can be real magic. And so since I've talked about that before, I won't belabor that. I'm going to point to two more things. I'm going to say, there are two other main reasons why this feud was so great, and it's about things they don't do, traps they didn't fall into. Now, the first one is um, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Matt, you have said in the past to me uh, – I know this is something you've said, which is uh, like imagine how differently the NWO feud would be received 
if it had started in the mid nineties, like it did, and it ended at Star K ninety seven with like a clean sting win with no shenanigans, if it was just a year and a half long storyline with a beginning, middle, and end. Like you've talked to me about that a lot. Well, a lot, but like you've mentioned that, and uh, you know, I, 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 I call you in the middle of the night and I ask you it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um. I, 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 the thing that's great about this feud is it has a beginning, middle, end, and how many feuds in wrestling, or not even just feuds, just angles, characters, they milk it and milk it and milk it way past ex- expiration date because they want to get every last drop out of it. Or even not just wrestling, like how many TV shows, movie series, you know, book series, do they go way past its prime where it's clear they're running out of ideas, but it's just like there's money in this. And this – the credit to Gabe Sapolsky. He had the balls to – like you mentioned at the start of the show – this show, you know, the, they were drawing record sh- gates on this feud in Philly. This show drew more, according to you, like noticeably more than the last Philly show, and yet they're just ending it here. You know, so many, how many bookers would go, let's keep it going until the starts going, the crowd starts yeah, going now down. Most, like, most would, would milk it until it was clear that the well had run dry. Yeah. I mean, maybe this was, I would have guessed this would have been the peak, but you could have tried to squeeze something more out of it, and they don't. They, they, right. And it's definitive end. Like I said, know. like I said, if they were going to do it for longer, what you know, they could have done what the NWO did: more members, more people involved, title changes, all this stuff. But they mostly kept that core group. They stayed focused on what it was about. They didn't, you know, branch out and make it more complicated than it needed to be. And they ended it and got out of there. And, uh, you know, like even, you know, with the fact that they kept it so simple meant that there was a bit of repetitiousness on some of these brawls leading up. Like you could, and like, so in that sense, you could tell like the, the angle was nearing its time to end, but that's only because they didn't decide to branch out and do all sorts of new, like different stuff with it. So like they could have, if they wanted to, and they didn't. And yeah, it's, I think that's extremely admirable. And it makes this, uh, yeah, you know, a, a short, satisfying six month storyline that everyone who has ever watched it loves. Yeah. I, that's probably too strong say- to say everybody, but <laughs> I'd say I've never read anybody saying that it was bad. <laughs> Let me put it that way. But if you're looking for lessons from this feud, I would say one is the, the Ring of Our CCW feud is much more like Succession than The Simpsons. You know, there's, we've seen a lot of feuds out of The Simpsons where it's great, and then they just keep going, and they just keep going, and they just keep going. You know, the NWO was The Simpsons. It was great, and then it was okay, and then it just never stopped. Uh, this, you know, this is going to end on a high note, and where arguably there was more juice to squeeze, and they're just – no. And another point, which who's, is what you well, just touched on. Who's the cousin Greg of this feud? <laughs> It's so easy to do like a WWE succession. I don't know how you do a Ring of Honor succession. It's, it's got to be. It's got to be a steel. A steel's a steel's promo on this show was the Tom and Greg highlight of the of the episode. I would say. <laughs> so, but the next point I would make is like you. I completely agree. Like you just said, I would say in like the last double shot or two before the show, I was starting to feel just a slight bit of fatigue. We've talked about before, like. Occasionally, Ring of Honor feuds have that, like where, or the the Punk feud had that, where the the Summer of Punk, where they're just kind of hit. It feels like they're a bit of a holding pattern. They're hitting that same note for a few too many shows before they get to the big blow off. And yeah, that was the same here. But the good thing is, because the feud isn't over long, you know, it it, it doesn't over. It, it's just barely starting to overstay its welcome, and then has the huge. And and another lesson I think is, if you have a really hot start to an angle and a really hot start end. 
the, the middle really does, and, and and it's not the angle doesn't go too long. The middle doesn't really matter that much. Like everyone's gonna remember Kiro at Hell Freezes Over. They're gonna remember the hundredth show. They're gonna remember Arena Warfare maybe, and they're gonna remember Cage of Death and Ring of they're Homicide re- and Ring of Homicide. Yeah, and Ring of Homicide. They're not gonna remember all the random Adam Pierce, B.J. Whitmer brawls in the mid card. And it doesn't matter. It's remember, and those were fine. Some of them were good, but like as long as you stick the major points and you don't overstay stick around too long, it really doesn't matter. The rest of it, I think that's a lesson to learn. Yeah, um, and, and and I think you know, you know, not a small point. It finally got Chris Hero in the door of Ring of Honor and exposed him to a, a much larger audience. And I, you know, I think he's you know one of the big stories of this uh, of this feud too. Yeah, and that's another successful thing is to think about this feud is – this is an example, again, of Booker doing something that Booker's normally uh, – you know, Gabe is occasionally listening to the show. If he's listened to this one, he'll be – I talked about how doing the show with some years has made him hard. That will make him hard because we, we have not praised Gabe this much since like some of this – this is peak Gabe Love Fest. Well, you're, taking, this, well, you're taking this places I did not expect. <laughs> Get the heck in that. Um, so – the thing, you know, so how many bookers have they done this thing where they don't personally like something? And so even if their fans tell them they want it, they don't bring it. Like it, it's well documented. Gabe has even admitted that he didn't see anything in Chris Hero. That's why he didn't up to this point. Eventually he would. But like, but yet he booked him in for one show because he knew there was enough fans that would have wanted to see that it would have been a good hook for a show. And when that worked, he kept bringing him back. And Hero will get a regular Ring of Honor job out of this feud. You know, um, I'm sure CZW feud, like CZW's brand isn't necessarily completely kid cup of tea, but he booked the Necro Butcher and Necro Butcher would end up getting a regular job with Ring of Honor out of this. You know, like he went with things that the fans told him they wanted. And when they worked, he did not undercut them or, or, or anything like that. And that's brings me to like the last point this feud really hits on, which is it does another, the other thing it doesn't do that a lot of interpromotional feuds do, which is each side got to have clear big wins, but it also had a definitive blow off where one side won. I mean, granted, except you want to talk about the, the six on five thing if you want no, to say, okay. No one thinks about that. So I think we're okay. But, um, Interpromotional feuds often fall into one of two traps, right? Like it's either one person controls both sides of the feud, like say the WWE invasion storyline, but for whatever reason, they prefer one side so much over the other, they can't bring themselves to book the weaker, the, the, the second side as hard enough to be a threat. Like another example of that would be, I guess I wasn't watching wrestling for the time. I was a little baby, but like when, NWA bought the UWF from Croc, I mean from uh, Bill Watts. You know they didn't do interpromotional feud. A lot of their big stars had already left, but still, people talked about how like they never pushed the ones they did have on the level of, oh, of come other on. guys. You the- know that you were a little baby being there, like, oh no, Terry Taylor isn't treated like a star. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I was begging my parents. Like my first words were, "Get us CB, get us TBS, buy, get the converter box, mom." But um, why doesn't Doctor Death win the title? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, so that was you know that you know the invasion. Like people always talk about, like Vince McMahon owned both companies, and he still couldn't bring in himself to book WCW that hard because he still had that ingrained thing of I got to let everyone know every step of the way. WWE is better. And, and then on the other end of it, there are feuds where both sides work together and it, no, no, one person doesn't own both companies. But a lot of times in that time, in those 
feuds, you see either like a lot draws or you win one big match and we win one big match and we end even. And this feud, again, the one of the magic things about this feud is, you know, Gabe was not afraid to have CZW win huge moments in the sense like the hundred show ends with CZW completely dominating. The arena warfare show, the this the first time ROH ever goes to ECW Arena ends with CZW completely dominating and celebrating, you know, but at the same time, at, when it comes for the blow off, it's a very definitive blow off where Ring of Honor clearly wins. And again, granted, that's something that maybe not everyone can repeat because a lot of interpromotional feuds, the other side will probably tell you, we don't want you to beat us so definitively, but they were able to do it here. And that's part of what makes it great, I think. Can't disagree um, with anything you just said. Yeah. So I, 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 I think, um, that's all great. And the last thing I want to mention, Matt, about this is I think one amazing thing about this is people compared this a lot to the Invasion storyline because that was another huge interpromotional story, a much bigger one, obviously, that happened just a few years before this. And it was already known to be like one of the biggest missed opportunities in, of its era where they did get one huge pay-per-view buy rate out of it. There were a few good moments within it, but – Considering that was like the biggest, most anticipated feud that fans had fantasy booked in their heads for literal a decade or more, they did not get for, you know, you could do a podcast series about that, why it didn't come off. But one of the great moments in that feud was the old Stone Cold. And for people that don't remember or, God forbid, too young to remember, there was a moment in that feud where Steve Austin, who had at that point was a heel on the WF side, um, was, you know, kind of delivering, like, nah, I'm not going to help out WWF against this new invading threat. And Vince McMahon literally begs him, like, I want less of this wacky heel. St- I, I need the old Stone Cold. Like, you need to save us. And he comes in uh, in, a, in a match, saves everybody. It's this huge mind-blowing moment. I remember at the time, people, maybe even us and Aim Chance, were, or like, you know, the angle is saved, maybe, like, or at least they've really reset a lot. This has got Just, such... Justin Shapiro, it was a big moment for him. I could, I could verify that. <laughs> yeah, our mutual friend and former guest. And... Then Austin chain, turns on WWF very shortly afterwards, and it goes back to eh. so, and he goes back to more comedy. Does starts the what thing and all that. So, what this is a feud where it's amazing to look at this. This is Gabe basically doing the old Stone Cold feud better than the WWF that angle. Like Homicide is basically the exact same thing. It's both Austin and Homicide, these anti heroes that are like beloved and entrenched in their companies. Both guys have an authority figure begging them, come save us. Both times they come at the, except the difference is Homicide does it at the climactic moment of the story and they don't go backwards on it. Like he does this better. Like, you know, sometimes people will go, Oh, Gabe can't do this. Can't do that. Or he couldn't book. WF. I don't know if he could book WF style wrestling. Or not. I don't know. He never did it, but like, this is him booking a very famous, well-received WF angle. And in my opinion, he did it better. So there's that, I would say. And that brings us finally, Matt, this I think sums up some things you talked about. And I, I was kind of surprised. I completely forgot. About this. this is a great capper. And then we'll get to the final angle and we'll wrap up the show. But, this is Gabe Sapolsky. I dug this up from someone saved it. A 2008 MySpace blog back when MySpace blogs were a thing. I think it was something Gabe done right after he got fired from Ring of Honor. It was like, ah, I should try something. Got outreach. So this is what Gabe wrote. This is an excerpt from a larger column about something else. Sometimes ideas would come in a moment's time. It was like a flash of adrenaline straight into the brain. I would think 
and think of something, and then suddenly the vision would become completely clear in an instant, like an explosion. This happened for the Cage of Death format as the annual Death Before Dishonor show at the annual Death Before Dishonor show in 2006. The CCW angle was on fire, arguably the hottest angle ROH ever had. In fact, in the past two years, and remember he wrote this in 2008 after he got fired, in fact, in the past two years, there would be times that I would curse out the entire deal because every future feud we had would be compared to it and would rarely measure up. It became the standard and of a remarkably great exception. I think it was actually one of my downfalls because all I would read for the last two years was how such and such feud was good, but it wasn't the CCW feud. Anyway, back to the point I was getting at, I was thinking of the possible formats for the Cage of Death probably about six to eight weeks before it was set to go down. I knew it had to be something extra special and that we couldn't drop the ball with this blow-off. The final match is so important because it can make an average feud great into something great, a great feud into something legendary, or vice versa. In this case, we had a feud that had captured people's imaginations, and it was time to cement its place in history. I don't know how much time I spent thinking about what we needed to accomplish in this match, but it wasn't a small amount. Since early 2004, all of Ring of Honor's production was done in Tampa, Florida. I would always fly down there to produce. I would call them 20-hour trips. Basically, I would fly out of Philly at around 11 a.m., get to Tampa around 2 p.m. We'd go get some food, go to Guppy's if you are ever in Tampa. I looked it up. It's a seafood place. I think it's still open, so people want to go there, go check it out. Eat where, eat where the bookers do. But, um, and then work <laughs> through the night, <laughs> and work through the night until morning when I would take an early morning flight out. Needless to say, it was pretty exhausting. So what does this have to do with Cage of Death? I was struggling at the time to bring the format together and getting somewhat frustrated. I even started to get worried as each week passed. Time was running out. I knew it would be great with the talent involved, but I wanted it to be truly memorable. It was about 5 or 6 a.m., and I was walking to good old Gate 84 in the U.S. Airways terminal for the last leg of another 20-hour trip. As soon as I was dropped off, I went into zombie mode, just going through the familiar motions of getting to the gate while letting the thoughts of Cage of Death roll through my mind. Then in a moment, as I walked from security to the gate, it was literally like 30 seconds, I think, the entire format just exploded in my mind from the order of entry to the baby faces getting the advantage for the Brian, for the Brian Danielson Samoa Joe subplot to the Pierce Homicide Cornet angle, which for some reason fizzled out after the event, despite a really good cage match finale with Homicide and Pierce in Chicago, and the major points in between. The guys in the match took the rough format and made it into something very special. They all came up with creative stuff and put themselves on the line with fearless and flawless execution. The end result is a match storyline that people will be talking about for a long time. It was an example of a perfect total team effort. Everything clicked. So what does this have to do with my latest booking snap? Because this blog is about uh, a match that we might get to in 800 years from now for through the years. Anyway, he Gabe writes, well, I have to admit that for the last year or so, the material just didn't, didn't just explode into my head like it used to. Don't get me wrong. I am very proud of my final year and feel that we did some great stuff. I stand behind all that work and believe that it deserves your support if you like the ROH style of action. But I wasn't getting those explosions all the time. So that's pretty amazing of Gabe kind of framing this as kind of – in some ways, the beginning of the of the, the slow decline and of Gabe also like a millstone around his neck of something like, I could never top this. And I wonder if he still feels that way. Yeah, I mean, listen, every artist has their creative peak. You know, I mean, yeah. just, I, I, there's, there's always going to be somebody, I mean, there's always going to be some work that you make that's going to be considered better than the other stuff you did. Um, so I get that that's like, you know, like a curse for an artist to just like to create your magnum opus and have to be chasing that dragon forever. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you can't do great stuff after that. And I think, I think Gabe did. And, you know, I feel bad that he, uh, he felt 
this as like an albatross, but I never thought of it that way personally. I was never like, oh man, if only, like none of this is as good as the CZW angle. Like I, I kind of thought of it the way Gabe said it. Like it's a, just a really special exception, just something, you know, one of the great angles. I, you know, I think just wrestling in general, I, I get annoyed that they can't quite recapture the magic of some of the great storylines that I've seen in my life. Um, but I, um, but I never really held it against Gabe. Yeah, I think it changes over time because, like, you talk about every law artist have that moment. I think a lot of artists go through this thing where I've seen so many interviews of all sorts of types, all artists where when they come with, like, that one or two hit one, like, that song or book or whatever that's more popular than everything else they've done, for a few years they kind of resent it because they're like, oh, is that all everyone's ever going to talk about? But then, like, 10 or 20 years after that, you kind of learn to appreciate the fact that you had one of those ever because you realize how special they are. But I guess, yeah. like, in the year or two after that, you might be like, is this it? Is that really it for me? Like, is that uh, all? Like, yes. Although, although like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of it a little bit differently. I'm not thinking of like a one hit wonder. You know? Yeah, he's not. He's not a one hit wonder. But yeah. I can understand him feeling like, have I peaked? You know? Yeah. But like, I mean, like even like just like you know, just like the consent of the greatest like you know artists of all time, greatest directors, greatest musicians, greatest authors, like people that have tons of great work, they will have one that often towers over the others. Um. And, you know, it could come early. A lot, for a lot of people, a lot of musicians, it happens like in one of their first albums, you know, like you look back and say, oh, that was their best. Like they never got yeah. back to that level. But, you know, then, you know, you have a different type of member of the audience that appreciates your other work more, you know, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And you just get into different niches and stuff. Point is, I, um, I think Gabe, you know, I should be proud of this. And, you know, again, this, I know that blog that you read was many years ago. So yeah. I'm, I, you know, his, his whole mindset could, could change, but yeah. I think he did, he did good work after this too. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see some of it in our, and, and, uh, you know, he was right journey when he, when he talks about like, you know, he, he's writing this in 2008 and saying, I think people remember this for a long time. Like to this day, I think it's still remembered as one of the best things he's ever done. One of the best things ring of honors ever done, even after him. So like he, he was right. Like this is standing the test of time. It is like one of the, the top things on his resume. Yeah. I mean, one of and, the most satisfying, like beginning to end angles in wrestling of the past quarter century. So how can you, do I would that? say there's other things I like in ring of honor as much as this. I think, are, but I think a lot of Gabe's like best booking apart from this are like one match booking stories or like choices to do something or, or an angle happened one night. I don't think Gabe ever had one more successful thing like this where it's like a long storyline with these different dips and turns and a beginning, middle and end. I mean, I guess the closest is the summer of punk, which I imagine punk had a lot of. But I think this is even better than that. It's, it's, it's better. It's better. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I, I feel like he never really had something like this, or again, which is more like mainstream WWE TV, like a, a real storyline that really just progresses and builds to a, a dramatic conclusion. And the only other thing I think that was really interesting about this thing is Gabe has been a guy, if you watched, ever watched, he put out a DVD when he got fired from Ring of Honor with kayfabe commentaries about like – Gabe's book of ROH secrets and there without saying he kind of admitted I was burnt out. I think Gabe has been pretty honest, you know, compared to some bookers about burnout where, you know, Dave Meltzer stuff will go on. If you look at the history of bookers, most bookers burn out after like three to five years. And I think it's interesting that Gabe, even in 2008 was kind of a very consciously like putting his thumb on like, these things used to, these flashes, you know, where all of a sudden I would just have these moments of inspiration used to come to me. And in 2008, they stopped, you know, they weren't coming to me anymore. And that'll be interesting for us to track over time if we agree. But like, it's interesting that even that early, he was kind of aware that like, 
I, I, I have clearly started to burn out or just something is missing. But after the match, Jim Cornette comes out, says the hardcore fans in the crowd wanted their garbage wrestling. Well, they got it, and their garbage wrestlers got their garbage asses kicked. Uh, Cornette orders the Ring of Honor ring crew and officials to take out the trash. They do so as the Ring of Honor fans chant, na 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 na, hey, hey, goodbye. There's some great CCW wrestler reactions here from Eddie Kingston screaming and flailing as he gets carried out by the hands and feet to an exhausted Chris Hero just fl- flipping everyone off as he's kind of just stumbles and dragged away. Um, Cornet shakes the hands of some of the team of Ring of Honor wrestlers as they leave, but he tells Adam Pierce on Homicide to stay. Uh, Cornet thanks J.J. Dillon for leading the Ring of Honor team to a victory. Cornet thanks Adam Pierce for being his eyes and ears the last two months while he was recovering from surgery, but most of all, he wants to thank Homicide. He knew he had the heart of the war of a warrior. Cornet cuts to start starts to cut this promo about how he knew the homicide would come to the rescue and not let his home promotion down. The CCW fans start chanting "boring." The ROH fans start chanting "shut the fuck up." Cornet says, "We're not interested in hearing about the CCW fans' sex lives." Ooh, burn. Um, Cornet says, "Homicide came through and he wanted three wishes." Cornet is so happy. He goes, I, "I I I give you my word. I'm going to give you your three wishes. Any three things you want." And so Homicide gets on the mic, gets a mic of his own. He says, "My first wish is I want to fight Steve Carino in a ring." of honor ring Cornet agrees and he says if he has to drag steve creel off his living room couch he'll make it happen homicide then points to his in the shoulder creel injured in that match a while ago so homicide like you know clearly re- referencing that second homicide wants a guaranteed ring of honor world heavyweight title shot Cornet thought said i thought you were going to go there he says you know homicide you're over you're popular which Cornet, that's the same thing you're tough you got it you got a shot at the world title so at this point the crowd before Homicide even says a word, starts chanting Loki. And of course, Cornet does a really good job acting job here, looking around the crowd like, what the fuck? Like, why are you asking for that? And then Homicide does indeed act, ask Cornet for his third wish to reinstate Loki. And Cornet's demeanor instantly changes from happy and excited to just dour, frustrated. The crowd chants for Loki. They chant, just say yes. Cornet says, we've got a problem. It was that stupid, goofy, awkward little midget that knocked my teeth out. Cornette says he will do three things for Homicide, but Loki has nothing to do with Homicide. That's not that's a, not a thing for Homicide. That's a thing for Loki. Cornette's never going to let Loki back in Ring of Honor as long as he's around. Crowd starts saying bullshit. Homicide, Loki's his friend, his partner in crime, and Cornette's a goddamn liar if he's going to give him all three of his wishes. Cornette's pissed now. And again, he states, I'll do something for you. I'm not going to do anything for Loki. And he says, I don't understand what the big deal is anyway. Unless your name, is your name homicide or is it homocide? Is he your gay lover? And the crowd goes, ooh. Homicide just, drops I mean, the mic. Like, so, Cornette just goes to that well so often. <laughs> yeah. And so homicide drops his mic. Cornette screams and asks him, what's it going to be? You know, what are you going to do? And homicide at that point spits in Cornette's face and dares Cornette to punch homicide. And that's when Adam Pierce, who's been standing around watching this, attacks homicide. Homicide gains the advantage, but Cornet then sprays him with mace, which I guess he brought with him to the ring. Always keep that handy. And orders J.J. Dillon to lock the cage, which he does. Julia Smokes tries to get into the cage, but can't. Dillon handcuffs Homicide to the ropes as the crowd chants same old shit for this. The well, crowd chants for well, well, hold CZW on, hold, fans, you would the, say. Yeah, the, it's the C, only the CZW fans were chanting that. The crowd chants for Joe. Joe's not coming back. Smokes tries to climb the cage, and when he gets to the top, Cornette pepper sprays Joe, I mean, Smokes as he's on the top of the cage, and people in the crowd actually laugh at that. <laughs> like, they're like, ha-ha. Like, it's just a goofy thing. J.J. Uh, Dillon tears one of the homicide shirts off. As Cornette takes his own belt off, he starts whipping homicide's bare back with it as he's handcuffed to the ropes. The crowd's still chanting for Loki, I think. Some of them are probably expecting Loki's going to make a run-in. 
ROH students then rush the ca- rush the cage. Pierce and uh JJ Dillon are have weapons that they're you know banging against the cage as they try and climb to keep them away. Cornette begins to choke Homicide with the belt and then goes back to whipping him as he tells Homicide, you'll you'll rule the rue the day you did this. Cornet gets on the mic and tells Homicide to be careful what you ask for, because you just might get your ass beat. And then he tells anyone in the crowd on Homicide's side that they can kiss his big white ass too. Crowd chants, fuck Cornet, so he leaves. Students rush in finally at that point to help Homicide. We get about a full minute, Matt, of hot wrestling students trying to free Homicide for handcuff action until they finally do. The crowd chants for Homicide, and then we quickly end the show. So this was a divisive angle. You can look at it from a couple of ways. On one hand, you can say wrestling logic is the best time to do an angle, a hot new angle is at the end of a big storyline on a big show where everyone's going to be watching and buying this DVD and watching their live you know, it's a, it's a great time to do that. But I imagine this was likely one of Ring of Honor's biggest selling DVDs of the year. It kicks off a storyline that in some ways runs for the next, the rest of the entire year. And I also think Homicide's Three Wishes all make perfect sense. Like if, if, if the Homicide character, if you told me to write for the Homicide character what three things he could want, if he could have anything in wrestling, those are the three things I would, he, he would pick. I think that's great. And it sets up things for the future. On the other hand, this was a very big downer ending to a feel-good blow-off that ran for six or seven months. And sometimes you also need to give a fans a happy ending. The crowd got that for like a couple of minutes. And then watching this, you can almost hear the crowd go through the stages of grief where they go from being excited to less excited to chanting for Joe and Loki to make the save, then realizing that nothing like that is coming, and then they're being kind of flat. And um, I also feel like kind of selling the angle around – low-key knocking out Jim Cornette's teeth when we all know the real reasons low-key isn't there. It's kind of harder to sell that. And the idea that Lo- Cornette holds such grudges, even a storyline, like low-key didn't attack him on purpose. It was an accident in a big crowd brawl. Like, it, it's a, that's a layer of fakeness that's that's a little faker than everything else that's part of this angle. My gut says in a perfect world you would do the happy ending tonight and do the post-match on the next show. Except when I looked at the schedule, Cornette isn't booked for a Ring of Honor show in peer, in in person for a whole lot of shows now. So really, if you want to do this angle and have it carry the next few months, you kind of had to do it now. So what do you think about all this, Matt? <sighs> so I, I thought like, honestly, like if I really just like analyze it, I think it's like another really smart piece of booking. I think everything makes sense. Like you said, like the low key things, a little bit of a stretch, but like ultimately you can make it make sense in wrestling logic. Yeah. I think the performances were good. I think, like, you know, the, the stage, like, the you know, the set pieces were all there for, like, Pierce as Cornette's henchmen, and they're in the cage, and JJ is there so they could do the tribute to the Dusty in the cage angle, which is basically what this was. And, you know, Cornette's character has always been a little bit of a prick, so it's not that much of a twist to get him just to be, like, that heel character and... You know, he's just antagonistic enough with homicide. And I think, I think everything was set up perfectly. Like, and it was, you know, really smartly done. But I also don't really like it. Um, and like, I don't blame Gabe for doing it. I don't think it was like bad booking per se. But I remember, first of all, the thing you said, it is a downer. Um, I do, you know, I mean, listen, ROH does give the crowd their happy ending, like, at the end of the year. Like, it's, like, you know, unmitigated. This is a heavy heat angle that Ring of Honor rarely does. Like, this is an old school, like, super duper heat. This is the biggest post-match angle they've done at least in two years since the time Loki came back and joined the Rottweilers. Um, You know, they don't usually do big post-match angles, period. Um, 
but you know, I you know, I guess you could say that the punk turn, I guess, would be the other one. Um, the year before. Now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but um, the, I mean, there's just things about this that just don't work for this audience. Um, it's just too old school and too WWE. And I think Gabe wondered why this program fizzled. I think that's why. Like, it makes all the sense in the world that Homicide would be up against an evil commissioner. But people don't, didn't watch ROH to see an evil commissioner. Like, yeah. they didn't want to do, and like, they tried to straddle the line where Cornette was like just a heel with Homicide, but he didn't have a problem with anyone else except that they helped Homicide. But like, come on. Like, Homicide's the top baby yeah. face, so he's a heel commissioner. Um, um, I think that's the biggest thing. Like, you know, people that just not, the people just want to watch great wrestling. Like, the other stuff is just too, it's too, like, too contrived. This is 2006. You know, WWE had basically been doing this nonstop for years. TNA did versions of it. You know, I mean, it's just, it was just too, um, too hacky like it was like you know and i'm not saying like the booking was much smarter than the way it usually is on like in those televised wrestling shows like so i'm not saying the booking was hacky but it felt too hacky in terms of this is just what all the other promotions do yeah um i also think like they Cornette's involvement led to them playing on some old like southern heat stuff that i don't think played well even at the time like I think at the end when Cornette was walking away and he said, anyone who's on his side can kiss my big fat white ass too. And, you know, it, it obviously like brought to the foreground what was the obvious subtext of this Southern man whipping this uh, person of color. Like, and obviously homicide is not African American, but I don't think the imagery was a coincidence, you know, with Pierce yeah. and JJ and homicide doing the whipping like i get why cornet would think that was a good idea to go there you know like, i mean that's just wh- that's the territory he booked and that's just how mm-hmm. it was done and stuff like that but i think you know when cornet mentioned that he has a white ass i think that really hammered home the point that they're obviously trying to play on some like racial heat also which i don't think is necessarily what you need at a mid-aughts show in the northeast um so there's that um I, I can't objectively say that there was anything wrong with the way this was booked. Like, I don't think that it was a bad idea. I think if, you know, Gabe Sapolsky, for some crazy reason, had asked me before the show, like, what do you think if we do this? I'd be like, yeah, that that's that's great. That, yeah. that, that, that'll work. I just don't think it did. And I think it's just sometimes you try something and it doesn't work. Now, the good news is people loved Homicide enough that they sat through this for the next six months. We'll sit through it for the next six months of shows. Uh, we'll see that some days, some days it works better than others. But ultimately, all that matters is that at final battle in New York City, Homicide gets to win the title from Brian Danielson. Mm-hmm. And whatever they did in between, it really doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, they made it into a Homicide versus Cornette feud to and Pierce to kill the next six months. And that's fine. But I, uh, it really was all about that moment. And, you know, we're going to see the moment was everything it needed to be. So ultimately this wasn't like a disaster or anything, but if you're asking me what I think of it, ultimately I would say I'm more negative than positive on it. Despite the fact that I think it was a smartly booked angle. 
Yeah, you did a really good job kind of elucid, like really honing in on some stuff. I, I think really, yeah, this was a 1994 Smoky Mountain angle, Mountain Wrestling angle. And, you know, Smoky Mountain Wrestling was great, but like this was 2006 Ring of Honor. It doesn't quite fit. And like going to UTHAM said about the racial stuff, you know, people can look in things different ways. But I will say, like, if you want to give people benefit of the doubt, you know, you look at speaking of Smoky Mountain, like Jim Cornette was not afraid to play with racial stuff for heat. So, like, it's not like, oh, how dare you accuse this? Guy? No, like he, he he you look up the gangsters. <laughs> You know, he's not afraid to do to, to, you know, and again, I think that would be the wrong because if the, any of the audience picked up on that as it was happening, I don't think a 2006 indie audience would be like really into being like thinking about racism. I don't think well, they want that. Well, I could just Compared tell you to like a Southern 80s or 90s audience, you know, I, I can just tell you. So I went to the show, you know, I have, a, I, have, I, have a, I have a good friend that doesn't like wrestling at all, like literally like really doesn't like it at all. But he indulged me a couple times during this era, went to maybe like two, maybe three ROH shows with me over those few years. Like just, you know, kind of like keep me company. And he was at this show with me. And, you know, and, and you know, I think, you know, he 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 enjoyed the spectacle in some ways, but he noted immediately, and then this was in two thousand six. Like we were in our early twenties. Like this wasn't like, you know, years later where like we're like, you know, like but he was like like wow, like this this old white guy's like whipping this this guy, and like you know, like he was clear, he was pointing out like there was clearly like this racial overtone to it. Like I, I, it's not, it wasn't subtle, and it's not some, it wasn't hidden. And I'm not saying that it was like the end of the world, like or anything. Like you know, it wasn't like an overtly racist angle or anything like that. And you know, we've seen some of those. But you could but, argue it was flirting with it to try and yeah, juice yeah. It. it was very clearly like flirting with that imagery. Like I, w- I would say. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So my last question for you on this before I get a couple things about news things about the angle was just, Matt, do you think if they um if if Loki had actually come out and saved Homicide, do you think this would be rumored differently? How differently would that change? Because I think oh my one goodness, crazy it would be a totally different angle. Are you kidding me? Like because <laughs> I, I think one and you could have done you know Homicide and Loki again against the Briscoes and all that and against Pier, but I, I will. Say one thing that's crazy about this angle is you talked earlier about you know we we sometimes we reference this the old Chekhov's gun thing and you reference Chekhov's sack by the way you you joked earlier but high referenced about how podcasting had made me hard you, people could clip you talking about sack like eight times today people could have a fun with this episode of the podcast Matt but um you were talking I'll, about Chekhov's I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> people talk about check off sack with bj whitmer like the idea that if you reference something at the start of something you better deliver it later in, in fiction you know it's kind of wild that ring of honor made like loki such a prominent like really the central thing of this major angle you never get loki ever again and you can like you watch this angle again the crowd the first minute or two this angle is happening is chanting for loki in a way like you think that they're thinking that he might come out yeah I, he might I, save the day i i'm pretty sure i didn't think that like I, I don't know what I, I don't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure like I, I kind of understood that Gabe was at least at that moment done. I don't think I thought that Loki would never return, but I didn't think he was going to be there that night. <laughs> but it is one thing that kind of goes against wrestling with that idea that like I mean, wasn't even Vince McMahon famously got mad when like CM Punk and Austin. Steve Austin like teased a feud because he was like, well, if we're, if we're not really actually doing that match, we shouldn't tease it because that's not good. That'll just disappoint fans. Like this is something where they're like saying, you know, they're, they're putting, I, I know not everyone, maybe some people might've been very steadfastly remembering that think reading the newsletters thing, ah, Loki's done. But you know, if you're just a wrestling fan, that's not aware of the underlying heat, you would watch us and think, Oh, Loki's definitely coming back. That's true. Like, he yeah, has to. No, it's a good point. And yeah, I mean, like, I, I didn't even consider that possibility. Like if Loki had actually come out here, like, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, hell yeah, it would be remembered differently. Like, it would be amazing. It'd be back to being a happy ending. And, yeah. you, and that'd be another, have your cake and eat it too, because you would get, like, the heat angle, but you would still have a happy ending. Exactly. But anyway, so we'll go to the newsletters to wrap this up. So PW Torch wrote, the crowd was said to have been dead for this segment after he admitted that. So again, this isn't us uh, analyzing something after the fact. This was at the time people were like, oh, that, that angle killed the crowd. It definitely killed the mood, like for 100%. Yeah. And then the Observer wrote, the crowd was quiet because they really didn't want to see the heel authority figure storyline, which I wonder if he talked to Matt Feuerstein because Matt, you just laid that out. Plus they like Cornette, which – yeah, I mean, they do, but no, they do. I they, think they, they, they did. On them. Like, yeah. They they were also expecting a low key run in. The this deal was actually now this is the part Matt, I'm kind of wondering if I believe this. So Dave writes, this deal was actually made when Cornet agreed to come in as the authority figure. He was pretty much done with Ring of Honor when Sapolsky suggested the long term angle where he'd be babyface commissioner and eventually go heel. Cornet liked the idea. The idea behind this is to create Danielson versus Homicide as the small scale dream world title match that doesn't happen for a long time. Loki is not coming back as his name was used only because that was the best idea anyone had for a storyline for a justification that Cornet would be justified in turning it on Homicide. Um, there was a lot of negativity on the post-match, and I can see the feeling that the heel authority figure has been done to death on Raw for so many years that you groan just thinking about it. But the storyline of Cornette asking Homicide to save the day, Homicide saving the day, and Ray of Honor scoring its big win to end what has been the easily the best pro wrestling feud of this year with CZW, it was at the right time after the big triumph that was the perfect emotional time to do the, to do the Cornette turn, and it was done in a manner that was consistent to everyone's character. And Matt, here's the sentence you're going to love. J.J. Dillon whose work at ringside in this match was tremendous in getting the credibility of the match over as he reacted like this was a huge deal during the twists and turns and never overreacted to where he came off as fake, handcuffed Homicide to the corner, and locked the door when Cornette whipped him. Even as someone who hates the heel authority angle, the execution of this and the timing were pretty well perfect. And then he adds some more notes on the Jim Cornette heel turn and Homicide this followed up like a couple weeks later in the newsletters. Cornette was pretty much fed up with wrestling after the final blow up with WWE and wasn't all that interested in coming in as a regular as commissioner. This basic angle was laid out from the start and really it was the piece of the overall puzzle that caused Cornette to make the decision to come out of what he considered to be his retirement. This led to the TNA deal because Cornette's feeling was he went out in a bad way as a performer in WWF since it was during the Vince Russo time period where they didn't allow managers to get any steam and they started to re- the move to replace them with the women. I love that. They started to replace them with the women. The, the, the women. TNA run. <laughs> they're, full, they're in binders. Um, great <laughs> Romney joke for you guys. Yeah, let's, um, let's, let's make as many references as we can. <laughs> the TNA run is his attempt to go out as a performer with a good national television run. So, Matt, I, I want you to rant about J.G. Dillon if you want. But also, because I think he was good, but I do agree Dave's overstating his importance. But also, I kind of don't know if I believe this idea that they had this particular storyline like planned right from the beginning. And this was the, like J- Jim's corner. And it was like, oh, I don't want to come back, but if I get to be a heel commissioner in modern pro wrestling, like he, he Cornette isn't even around much longer after this. Yeah. That seems hard to believe. I mean, definitely if someone were trying to tell me that the, when Cornette came in, the idea was Brian Danielson would eventually lose the title to homicide who turns baby face after feuding with Jim Cornette. Yeah. No way was that planned that far in advance. Um, but, you know, if the idea is just he'll eventually turn heel, I mean, I guess, but it, it doesn't sound like what a, like, oh wow, what a brilliant idea. Who could have thought of such a thing? Um, 
But as far as J.J. Dillon, yeah, I do think that he enhanced the post-match angle. Like, I think the fact that, you know, he was there and he was part of the, the Dusty stuff, too. Like, I think that – but as far as, like, his contribution to the Cage of Death match, first of all, how many times did they even show him on the DVD? Like, <laughs> maybe twice? Dave's rough, maybe Dave's rough edit that he got sent early was, like, nothing but J.J. <laughs> Dillon reaction. Yeah, J.J. Dillon reacting. And, like, live, I maybe looked at him – even less than they showed him on the DVD. Like, just, I'm not saying he did anything wrong or didn't do a good job. The idea that he had made any difference in getting that match over <laughs> is, like, totally undermining all the work of the actual people involved. Would that match have even been an ounce, an iota less over if J.J. Dillon had been nowhere near this in Philadelphia on that night? Like, yeah, at I, I, all, at all would it be even a little bit less over which in your opinion i love how this is getting to I, like I, I agree though like like i think jj did as a uh, good a job as he could be asked for in his role i thought he did a good job like dave said of reacting without going too crazy he did always the good reactions in the moment but to your point yeah like if i had to give like i would say he made this entire night zero point two or maybe 0.02 percent but like he made it he, the whole the night was better because it but very little bit it was like, a cute <laughs> reference like as during that match that's all it was in the in the post-match angle i get it but like in the match a cute reference that's all it was yeah, yeah, and, and if you read, if you just read Dave's Observer that we just read, and you don't watch the show, the way Dave like gushes upon that one or two sentences, it makes it sound like like uh, JJ Dillon was like twenty percent of the magic of this night. Like, yeah, you know, and, yeah and JJ's again, expressions carried it. And I have nothing. I'm not complaining about JJ. I have nothing against what he did. No. I'm annoyed at Dave during this era <laughs> for always trying to like undercut the praise for ROH by somehow talking about how somebody old a real performer was the real reason why it was good. Yeah. You know, like that's the stuff that, that bugs me. Well, I will say though, on the scale of, um, of legends that have come for a quick payday or whatever to shoot a shoot interview he's with ring of honor. Than, he's better than Bill Watts, definitely. Yeah, I was about to say he is a million percent better than Bill Watts who was basically stealing money. Even if you, if you tell me that Bill Watts did that for free, he still was stealing money. Yeah, if, if, you, if, if you told baby Trevor about Bill Watts's <laughs> performance in ROH, you would have been, you would have felt better about the way that that UWF uh, uh, acquisition was was treated by Crockett. I, I would have went, what's a cell phone and why is Bill Watts answering this during a promo? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> if you were watching Polly Dangerously, you'd know what a cell phone oh, is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Polly Dangerously ahead of his time. But that was the show. That was a big one. We had some short ones lately, so we made it up to you with this one. And this was certainly a show that warranted it. But, um, yeah, I mean – this is one of those shows where it's one match is so long, like between the entrances and the post-match of the Danielson promo. I mean, it's probably over an hour of the show is just devoted to that main event. And to me, that alone makes this a must-watch because it's a huge selling point. But don't sleep on Roderick Strong and uh, Nigel McGinnis. And the rest of the card is not bad. There, there's some – I would say like everything else other than the Seth Delay Delirious is delir- – is, uh, I was going to say everything but that's Delirious. That would be weird. Is disappointing, but it's not bad. It's just disappointing. Yeah, well, I mean I would say the embassy tag match is not disappointing. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And I completely forgot that. That's good. That's not yeah, like good. Yeah, that good, yeah. I think this is a good show, like a good show from top to bottom. 
And I think that the atmosphere is great throughout. I think there's great promos or good promos throughout. You know, I think if you've never watched this ROA CZW feud, you get some fairly decent recaps throughout. I think there's a second great match on the show and one legendary match. Um, really the only negative, I, negative feelings I had on the show were about the finale, like the post match. Yeah. But even that, it's like, it's a good, well booked angle. Like I, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, there's a lot of baggage to it. But no, I mean, that main event is as bad as legendary as an ROH match can get. I mean, like you got, it's, you know, on the elite tier list of ROH matches, you know, you got your, your Joe Punks and your Joe Kobashi and some of the Danielson McGinnis matches and, and you got this and, you know, and Dragon Gate six man, but like, this is, this is it. Like you yeah. got to see this match. Like it's, 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 it's legendary. That, one of, one of the great that, matches of the, uh, of this, uh, century so far. You've got to see this match as the perfect way to sum up because a lot of times on the reviews we'll go, especially me, like you, you, can, you can skip this or you could watch this or see this if you're already streaming it or, or this you have to see. Like this, I, I don't generally like to be gatekeeper, but I like to say if you're interested in Ring of Honor history and you want to like say, oh, I, I've at least learned some of it, like this is one of the top matches on the list. Like you have to see this. If you, if you, can, really if you are care enough to sit through this podcast, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know watch this match. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you have to. If you're thinking, if for some reason you just listen to this show for fun, if you're one of those people that it's sometimes like me, where I like listening about subjects more than I like actually consuming the subjects, no, just just go watch this match right now. Go watch it. Do it right now. Go, or at go least, do it. Or at but, least like in the next like couple weeks, you know. Yeah. Okay. You're fine. See, Matt's the good cop. But anyway, that brings us to plugs. You want to contact us through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H. Uh, remember, tell people about the show. We don't charge anything for this. We don't have ads. This is this is just all we ask is if it's word of mouth, if you like it and you think you know someone else that likes it, review it on iTunes or whatever. People – I haven't said any of this in a long time, but this is a big show, so I might as well do it. You know, People say review it on podcast apps. That apparently does something magical. Um, yeah, and Twitter, at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF. And – Next time, we will be covering War of the Wire 2. As we mentioned earlier, there is technically an epilogue to this amazing feud. We will see um, BJ Whitmer and Necro Butcher wrestle in Ring of Honor's second ever No Ropes Barbed Wire match. And on top of that, Matt, there's a little rematch to a match we liked quite a bit. Roderick Strong and Jack Evans versus the Briscoes, like two of the best tag teams Woo! of their generation. So that should be fun. This was great. This was a huge show. Hopefully that'll keep you well-fed for a while. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.